SpaceX's new Starship launched on a test flight this morning. Four minutes into the mission, it tumbled and exploded. SpaceX teams are still trying to figure out what the exact cause was, but it was at some point when the booster was trying to separate from the uh, Starship itself. It's Thursday, April 20th, and this is All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. That story coming up. Also, the debate on Capitol Hill about whether to raise the nation's debt limit. And in our local music series, Sound On, Concord-born Ally McGurk sings of love, loss, and social issues like climate change. I think and worry every day in an ordinary way. What have These stories done? and more coming up. It's 401. Live from NPR News, I'm Lakshmi Singh. The U.S. Supreme Court's adherence to its own ethics rules is under close examination in Congress. The chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee, Dick Durbin, has invited the Chief Justice of the United States, John Roberts, to testify before the panel on May 2nd. This following reporting by ProPublica that Justice Clarence Thomas accepted gifts and luxury travel from a wealthy GOP donor for decades, but failed to publicly disclose them. Many are waiting to see if the nation's top court intervenes in a legal battle over an abortion pill. If it does not, access to Mifepristone could be unavailable in many states as of Friday midnight. And Pierre Sarah McCammon says lower court orders would restrict the drug. If the Supreme Court were to take no action at all before that Friday night deadline, then a lower court ruling from the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals would take effect and would impose several restrictions on mifepristone. The FDA says it believes in that situation that every package of mifepristone would become instantly misbranded and couldn't be lawfully sold across state lines, among other things. The FDA also says the generic version of the drug would cease to be approved altogether. The bottom line is that everyone is once again watching to see what the U.S. Supreme Court will say. NPR Sarah McCammon. Alabama authorities say officers have arrested a fourth person in connection with last Saturday's mass shooting at a birthday party in Dadeville. Troy Public Radio's Kyle Gassett has more. With this latest arrest, the number of suspects the police have charged climbs to four. The same number of victims killed in the shooting last week at a Sweet 16 birthday party. All four suspects have been charged with reckless murder, and police have announced the last two arrests online instead of holding press conferences and taking questions. Police have also declined to discuss a possible motive for the killings. Meanwhile, one family has announced a funeral service for next week to remember Philstavius Dowdle. The track athlete and football player was one of two high school seniors killed. For NPR News, I'm Kyle Gassett in Montgomery, Alabama. In a new report, cybersecurity researchers say they've uncovered a North Korean plot to breach two software supply chain companies. The goal appears to be stealing money from cryptocurrency firms. Here's NPR's Jen McLaughlin. Over recent years, hackers have targeted software products from vendors in the supply chain in order to reach the greatest number of victims. Like when Russian hackers targeted popular IT software company SolarWinds, which was widely used by both the federal government and private companies. Now, researchers from Google's Mandiant say they found a double supply chain breach for the first time ever. That means North Korean hackers compromised a piece of financial trading software before then infecting a business communication software called 3CX. The multi-tiered attack gave the hackers high-level access to a large number of devices. The researchers believe they were narrowly interested in cryptocurrency companies and financial gain. Jenna McLaughlin, NPR News. This is NPR. 
This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Boston Marathon organizers are acknowledging their part in an incident in Newton Monday during the race. Police created a barricade between a mostly black cheer squad and the race course. Newton police say organizers called them to respond to complaints that spectators were walking on the course. Here's WBUR's Ali Jarmanning. The Boston Athletic Association says it met last night with two running groups, pioneers and trailblazers. The groups are upset police blocked their cheering section from supporting friends on the course. Today, association president and CEO Jack Fleming said in a statement the organization failed to create a great day for everyone. The BAA says it needs to do a better job creating a welcoming and supportive environment for communities of color. Meanwhile, attorneys representing the running group have sent a letter to Newton officials demanding a meeting, an investigation, and an apology. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Allie Jarmanning. In about three weeks, residents of Massachusetts will have to pay for over-the-counter COVID tests, the requirement that insurance companies pay for eight rapid antigen tests per month for each member expires when the federal COVID health emergency ends May 11th. Blue Cross, Tufts, and Harvard Pilgrim all say they won't cover COVID tests after that date unless the test is ordered by a clinician. The Coast Guard is searching for four men after their overturned fishing boat was discovered off Cape Anne near Rockport. The boat departed Hampton, New Hampshire early yesterday morning. Uh, Petty Officer Ryan Noel says the search is focused off the Massachusetts coast. The vessel was found at 12.50 this afternoon, and we are currently searching for those four males about eight miles off the coast of Rockport. We have found debris, but no sign of any people. Coast Guard is expected to search into the evening. The 17-foot fishing boat was reported overdue yesterday. And for the first time in three months, parts of Massachusetts have drought conditions. The U.S. Drought Monitor reports today the entire eastern half of the state, except for Cape Cod and the islands, is considered abnormally dry. That is the lowest level of drought conditions. Mighty fine weather out there right now. Sunshine lasting into the evening hours, then partly cloudy overnight, falling to about 44. Tomorrow, headed back to the mid-50s with bright sunshine to close out the work week. 63 degrees now in Boston at 4.07. WBUR supporters include ECMC Foundation, working to improve post-secondary educational outcomes for underserved students through evidence-based innovation. Learn more at ecmcfoundation.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Scott Detrow in Washington. Elsewhere in the program, I sat down with Senator John Fetterman, who's back on Capitol Hill this week after a 44-day stay at Walter Reed Hospital to treat depression. He told me why he's filled with gratitude and why he's still emotional when looking back on what the experience meant for his family and for his constituents. But first, a trouble brewing between the White House and Congress. That's right, Scott. Sometime this summer, the U.S. could default on its debt for the first time ever. That would tank the economy at home and all around the world. And to stop that from happening, Congress needs to lift the debt ceiling. But Republicans who control the House say in order to do that, they need to see spending cuts, too. They're tying two things together that should never be tied together, which is the full faith and credit of the U.S. and the need to avoid default with um, budget discussions. That's Jeff Zients, the White House chief of staff. He says a new plan released by House Speaker Kevin McCarthy is irresponsible. NPR White House correspondent Asma Khalid interviewed Zients and joins us now. Hey, Asma. Hey there. Good to be with you. Good to have you. Okay, so what is the next step in this crisis? Because 
The House Republican leader just unveiled his proposal. The White House strongly disagrees with it. Mm -hmm. Then what? Well, I will say it is rather unclear. I mean, the White House says Congress has an obligation to raise the debt ceiling. But McCarthy has been urging the president to start negotiating. He's trying to, you know, put the ball back in the president's court. And Elsa, to put this whole situation in context, the country has always paid its bills on time. Uh, But now it does seem to be inching closer to a rather uh, important deadline. I asked Zients multiple times in different ways if by McCarthy putting this proposal out there, this at least opens up the door to communication. And Steins didn't explicitly rule out talking to Republicans, but he made it very clear that the White House is not willing to tie a budget process to a debt ceiling increase. And I asked him, OK, well, then what exactly is the off-ramp? I think the off-ramp is very clear. It's the same off-ramp that was taken with no drama when President Trump was in the White House. Take default off the table like we have every time. Don't play games with the full faith and credit of the United States. It's unacceptable. It's not up for negotiation. And then have the separate uh, discussion around different visions for the future of the country and budgets. Okay, so basically the White House wants Congress to raise the debt limit. No questions asked. Mm -hmm. Yes, that's right. And, you know, for the most part, Democrats in Congress have agreed with that vision. But earlier today, West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin issued a strongly worded statement calling Biden out for not being willing to meet with McCarthy. Uh, He said it signals a, quote, deficiency of leadership and it must change. He said elected leaders need to negotiate a compromise. And I asked Jeff Zients, the White House chief of staff, why have you all been so unwilling? willing to to negotiate here, because during the debt limit crisis in 2011, the Obama White House did negotiate with congressional Republicans and spending cuts were part of the conversation. If you're going back a decade, I think the lesson learned was that plain brinkmanship with the full faith and credit of our country and getting close to a period of default had major impacts on the economy on families across the country, and we're not doing that again. And in 2011, Elsie, you might recall, the United States came closer than it ever had been before to defaulting. Mm-hmm. And as a result, rating agencies downgraded the U.S. credit rating. Stock markets plunged. It was not a great situation for the U.S. economy. Not great at all. Well, then let's just talk about the details of McCarthy's plan for a minute. I mean, the White House is insisting that the budget conversations have to happen on a totally separate track. But What is their reaction to some of these specific ideas Mm -hmm. in this Republican proposal? Well, so far, they have a lot of concerns. Uh, One of the things that McCarthy's proposal calls for is to claw back unspent COVID-19 funds. And Zients was actually Biden's COVID response coordinator before he became chief of staff. He told me that this is a bad idea. There is a false notion that there's a large amount of unspent COVID relief funds that can just be painlessly clawed back because these remaining funds, you know, they cover pension relief for blue-collar workers, money for veterans' health, small business support, and funding to help transport older Americans, those with disabilities who live in rural communities. So I don't, I don't think that is a prudent thing to do or a fair thing to do. The White House estimates that, you know, some of these programs could be cut by as much as 22 percent. The president (laughs) himself has said that this could lead to massive cuts for programs that Americans depend on for things like housing assistance and food stamps. And that's a hard sell for Democrats. That is NPR's Esma Khalid. Thank you, Esma. My pleasure. Every April, the city of Miami fills with poetry. Organizers behind the annual O Miami Poetry Festival have printed poems on parking tickets, flown them behind airplanes, and written them up on the top of ice cream pints. But one of their biggest projects is getting people to write zip odes, five-line poems inspired and shaped by your zip code. 
From member station WLRN, reporter Kate Payne brings us one poet's story of where and who she comes from. Luce Rossi never really thought her poetry would go anywhere. Now it's plastered on a billboard on a busy downtown street corner for all of Miami to see. I write so much stuff that I never really have it in my mind that it's going to be big someday or be anywhere someday. Like scores of Miamians, Rossi got into writing zippodes. They're kind of like haikus, but the numbers in your zip code determine how many words you get to work with in each line. Rossi's piece was chosen for more than 1,500 poems to be published on a billboard as part of the O Miami Poetry Festival. My name's Luz Rossi, and I live in Miami, Florida. She got to read her poem in front of the billboard, splashed in gold, with her words in five lines of bold black text. My zip code is 33125. My name came from my abuela, and she said we can share it forever. I met up with Rossi to talk about her grandmother and her journey to seeing herself as a poet. Okay, so this is the Westchester Regional Library. You know, when we come in, this is a circulation desk. This is the library where Rossi works, and it's where she wrote that poem about the other loose. In my heart, I never felt like a poet, and it wasn't until I wrote more where I was like, okay, I can feel the poetry now in me. Like, I can feel it flow out of me to the point where I'm like, I'm definitely a poet. There would be times where I'd have to, like, scramble for a piece of paper to write it down, and it's like those little moments there where I'm like, that's a poet. What did your abuela think when when she heard? Oh, she was so honest. She was proud, um, which touched me as well because, you know, she's my grandma, so I would love for her to feel happy of something I wrote about her. I can't even express how honored I am to be named after her, you know? Rossi said her abuela came from the Dominican Republic, and she had to struggle in Miami. It didn't always feel like home. It's not easy to do what she had to do to, you know, survive in a place where Spanish wasn't the main language and having to find work and make sure all her daughters are going to school and they're fed and it wasn't easy for her and she's still standing today as strong as she is. Now, her abuela's struggle is the story of Miami, a story worth writing about, and Rossi can be the one to tell it. For NPR News, I'm Kate Payne in Miami. A humanitarian crisis is growing in real time in the capital of Sudan. For nearly a week, two rival military groups have been fighting to control the country in the streets of Khartoum. It's killed hundreds of civilians, trapped many more in a war zone, and closed well over half of the city's hospitals. Among the many soldiers are two brothers who are not on the same side. One brother, Masab Jali, is fighting with the Sudanese army. The other, Yaqob Jali, is fighting with the Rapid Support Forces, or the RSF. I'm the only one losing in this war. No one else is losing. This is their oldest brother, Mohammed Jali. He spoke to us from their home in the region of Darfur, which is over 600 miles away from Khartoum. On Monday night, the family welcomed Yaqob's firstborn, a baby boy. But with the fighting ongoing, they had no way to contact Yaqob to tell him the good news. The two brothers in Khartoum weren't on speaking terms. So I started a group call with both of them, and we all talked. Then they started joking and laughing at me. I was so annoyed. We are worried, say, and they are laughing. They said, don't you know what we do? We fight. We either kill or get killed. 
Mohammed says his family's story is echoed across Sudan. In one family, you will find five fighting here and like ten fighting with the other side. I don't know. It's almost as if the war is inside our homes. At the center of all this fighting, all these families torn apart and the hundreds of deaths, are Sudan's two most powerful generals. Abdel Fattah al-Burhan, the leader of the Sudanese army and essentially the country's de facto leader, and Mohammed Hamdan Dagalo, better known as Himeti. He is the head of the paramilitary group Rapid Support Forces, or the RSF. They become like a second army in Sudan. The two generals used to be allies, and together they helped oust the former autocratic president, Omar al-Bashir. And now both sides are vying for power. Mohammed says he has told his brother so many times, you're doing the dirty work for these men. This fight is not what you think it's about. He said we have our own convictions and principles that we are fighting for. But I know we are fighting for the generals, not for the country. Mohammed also says that to understand why so many Sudanese people choose to join the army or the paramilitary, you have to understand what's been going on in Sudan for decades. Unemployment is so high in places like Darfur that are on the margins of the Sudanese society. Many cannot afford an education, and so sometimes the only thing they can do is enlist. They have no other options. So far, calls for a ceasefire have not worked. Speaking to Al Jazeera today, General Hamati said he refuses to sit down and negotiate with his chief rival, General Al-Burhan. But for Mohammed... The safety of both his brothers is at stake here. I'm stuck in the middle. I love them both. And I want them to come back to me. And after that, whatever happens, happens. That was Mohammed Jali speaking to NPR from his hometown Zalinge, the capital of central Darfur in Sudan. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Wall Street had losses across the board today. The Dow fell about one-third of a percent. S&P lost six-tenths of a percent. The Nasdaq fell eight-tenths of a percent. The number of people in Massachusetts who are applying for unemployment benefits is on the rise. New Labor Department figures show that last week nearly 16,000 people in the state filed initial claims for benefits. That's up four percent from two weeks ago. The increase mirrors a national trend, although economists say the number of applicants both here and nationwide is low by historic standards. It's 419. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by the Peabody Essex Museum, presenting Spirits, Saring Sherpa with Robert Beer, on view now. Plan your visit at PEM.org. And Merrimack College, offering master's in education programs and credentials for teachers with a state-aligned curriculum. Online.merrimack.edu. Good news from Fenway Park, where the Red Sox are leading the Minnesota Twins 11-4 to in the ninth inning. A win for the Sox today will give them a series win. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Native Plant Trust, welcoming spring at Garden in the Woods in Framingham, now open. The beauty of native plants in a dramatic landscape. Information at nativeplanttrust.org. A beautiful spring day today, and another one is ahead tomorrow. First, tonight, partly cloudy, falling to the mid-40s. Tomorrow, sunny, breezy, right around the mid-50s once again. The weekend should stay in the 50s, but right now it's looking like we'll get a lot of gray. Cloudy on Saturday, rainy on Sunday, some high winds on Sunday, too. This is 90.9 WBUR. It's 420. 
Support for NPR comes from this station and from Bank of America, offering access to resources and digital tools designed to help local to global companies make moves for their businesses. Learn more at bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness. And from Cunard, offering travelers an opportunity to voyage aboard Cunard's Queen Elizabeth to Alaska. Guests can explore ports and scenic cruising through Glacier Bay National Park with locally sourced cuisine. More at cunard.com. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. For girls coming of age in the 70s and 80s, girls like me, and to be clear, I came of age at the later end of that timeline, there was a rite of passage. It was digging into Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret by Judy Bloom. Through the story of 11-year-old Margaret Simon, we learned about getting our periods, about bras, about friendships, about sex, and so much more. Writing honestly for adolescent readers about puberty and sex is not unusual today in 2023, but in the 80s when I read Margaret, and in 1970 when it was first published, it was revolutionary. Now, Bloom's own story, how she came to write Margaret and 23 other books, is front and center in the new documentary, Judy Bloom Forever. Judy Bloom herself and one of the directors of that film, Davina Pardo, join me now from our New York offices. Welcome to you both. Thank you. Thank you. Um, Judy, I am told that you were initially hesitant about making this documentary, which kind of surprises me because um, you're so candid and so open and so out there in your fiction. Why were you reluctant to tell your story? I, I just, Because it's about me. <laughs> I didn't think I wanted that. Did you think we wouldn't be interested or? No, I didn't just... think at all about an audience. I, I was just thinking, did I want to do this? And I, 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 I just didn't want to do it. But Davina helped me understand it would be a good thing to do. And then I started to think it would be a good thing to do while I'm still alive and can participate. All right, Davina, that cues you up. Judy says you helped her understand why this would be a good idea. How did you do that? Really over a couple of years, we struck up an email correspondence. And I remember in that very first email, she was honest as she always is and open about her concerns. And I think over two years of emailing back and forth, getting to know each other a little bit, bringing on Imagine Documentaries. Oh, first we had breakfast because I wanted to meet Davina. Ah. Um, and it was it was a very sweet breakfast. And George, my husband, and I both liked Davina a lot, but we still weren't sure. And then you brought in Leah. This is Leah and, Wolchuk, the, the other yes, director. Yeah. Yes. And I was very comfortable with Davina and Leah, their generosity and their care with the women who had written to me as kids that they interviewed and brought on camera. They're part of the film. I wanted to ask about the letters because this is kind of the backbone of the movie is all through we see you, Judy Bloom, reading letters. And I I got the sense that you found those letters, that response, the way young people connected with your fiction, that you found that real-life communication as satisfying as as writing the books was. Is that right? Well, it was certainly a surprise when that started. It's like, oh, oh, you can actually hear from people who have read your books. And with some, 
of the young people who wrote to me. Our friendship and correspondence has never stopped. And just so that people understand, we're not talking about like a small shoebox of letters that we glimpse you in the middle of a room. It looks like the National Archives. Are those all boxes of letters that that came to you over the years? I think there's something like 147, somebody just told me. Is that right? Davina would know. It's extraordinary. I mean, it's thousands upon thousands upon thousands of letters. And kids are really pouring their hearts out about everything from sibling rivalry to sex and love and their changing bodies and real trauma that they're experiencing at home. I mean, the pain of loss, death, things that kids needed to talk about, but they had to talk about it with someone they wouldn't see at the breakfast table the next day. How did you decide as the filmmaker, Davina, to, to put these letters at the center of the movie? We knew as soon as we learned about the letters and how extensive that correspondence was, and especially that Judy had had really deep, intimate relationships with some of the readers over years, that they would be an important part of the film. It spoke so much to the connection Judy had with her readers. Well, Judy, I did not write you a letter. If I had, (laughs) among other things, I might have complained that the bosom-increasing exercise that Margaret does <laughs> fervently does not work because I tried, my friends and don't, I tried. And don't I know it. And when I talk <laughs> to kids, I tell them, it doesn't work, it doesn't matter, and one day when you're as old as I am, you might even be glad. <laughs> 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 we should, we should, for people who don't know what we're talking about, would you just say that what we're talking about here? We're talking about I must, I must, I must increase my bust with the proper accompanying arm movements. Like chicken wings flapping as we're, yeah. Yes. I remember sitting in a circle circa age, I don't know, 12 or 13 with my girlfriends and doing this. And I had totally forgotten about that because it's been a while until I watched your film, and then I was just on the floor laughing. Davina, were you being intentional with that and, and some of the other scenes about capturing? There's a lot of honesty, as we're talking about in Judy's work. There's also a lot that's just funny. Absolutely. I like funny. Yes. <laughs> funny is really important in life. Yeah. It is, and growing up is funny. I mean, it's, it's, <laughs> it's hard, and it's awkward, and it's painful, and it's funny. And something I talked about with Judy, I think, at the very first breakfast— was that we wanted the film to be funny. It can't all be serious. And one of the ways we move through difficult moments is by laughing. And there is so much humor in the pain and awkwardness of growing up in adolescence. And Judy's books capture that so well. So we really wanted the film to reflect that. I want to ask about a line of yours from this documentary, Judy, that resonated with me, which was, and I quote, I could be fearless in my writing in a way I wasn't always in my life. Explain. I'm not a particularly brave person. Certainly as a kid, I was, you know, a very anxious person. But when I sat down to write, I never felt afraid. I never felt fearful of anything that I was writing. I'm trying to catch up now in my real life. (laughs) And live as fearlessly as you have in your fiction? I'm trying. Oh, I love that. And you're, if I may ask, you're in your 80s now, right? I have turned 85. 85. Yes, 85. Would you share an example of what you're doing today that you might have been scared to do a decade or decades ago? Oh, no, not really. (laughs) I mean, I think it's just 
a way of thinking and being and doing. And I'm not afraid to speak out now. But I wasn't afraid to speak out in the 80s either because that's what saved me in the 80s when I felt so alone and dejected and people were coming after me and coming after my books. And it was when I met the National Coalition Against Censorship that I realized I wasn't alone. And then other authors who were also in the same position that I was, and we would go out together and we would speak out because speaking out is so much better for you in every way than hiding at home. That is the writer Judy Bloom and the director Davina Pardo talking about their new film, Judy Bloom Forever. Thanks so much to you both. Thank you so Thank much. Thank you for having us. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR coming up in about six minutes on WBUR. SpaceX's unmanned Starship rocket took flight over the Gulf of Mexico this morning. It then blew up. The story, as I said, in about six minutes. And at 4.44, Bob Mondello reviews The Covenant. Red Sox have picked up another series win as they thwacked the Minnesota Twins 11-5 at Fenway. The game just ended. Next, Boston hits the road for a series in Milwaukee that starts tomorrow night. In the forecast, tonight should be partly cloudy, falling to the mid-40s. Then tomorrow, sunny, breezy, right around the mid-50s once again. 63 degrees now in Boston at 4.30. WBUR supporters include Soaring Hawk Meditation Center, celebrating the present moment with a new exhibit on mindfulness. Located in Littleton, Mass., more at SoaringHawkCenter.com. And Good News Garage, over 5,500 donated cars given to New Englanders in need since 1996. Tax deductions and free towing, GoodNewsGarage.org. The DEA has infiltrated a Mexican drug gang that floods America's streets with illegal fentanyl. These guys are absolute creeps, these chapito dudes. Bringing these previously untouchable princes of drugs to some kind of justice is a very good thing all the way around. So why does Mexico's president object? Tomorrow on Morning Edition from NPR News. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. The Pentagon is sending additional troops and equipment to a nearby naval base for the possible evacuation of U.S. embassy personnel from Sudan, where fighting between two warring factions continues to escalate after a failed ceasefire. A U.S. embassy convoy was attacked in Khartoum this week, the Sudanese capital. White House National Security Spokesman John Kirby told reporters today there's No indication that either side is deliberately targeting Americans, but he says it's obviously a dangerous situation. Focus right now is on urging both sides to stop this violence, to abide by a ceasefire, to allow humanitarian aid to get to people that are uh, that are that need it. I mean, there's already shortages of food. There's concern over shortages of medicine and water. Uh, The situation is dire in Khartoum, uh, and we continue to urge both sides now to stop this violence. The State Department estimates about 16,000 private U.S. citizens live in Sudan but are not required to register. The Government Accountability Office has removed the 2020 census form from its list of high-risk government projects. NPR's Hansi Luong tells us the Census Bureau has yet to release all of the results from the last national headcount. 
COVID-19 and interference by the Trump administration derail plans for the 2020 count of the country's residents. The numbers have been used to reallocate congressional seats and electoral college votes, plus redraw voting maps and guide federal funding for public services. But for years, Congress's watchdog, the Government Accountability Office, has warned about risks, including cost, cybersecurity, and fewer people willing to participate in the count. The GAO says it no longer considers the 2020 census a high-risk project because of steps the Census Bureau has taken, including efforts to correct IT issues, better coordinate public outreach, and monitor costs. Now the GAO is keeping an eye on 2030 census plans. Anzi Luang, NPR News. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. The era of free, over-the-counter COVID tests is ending for most Massachusetts residents. The requirement that insurance companies pay for eight rapid antigen tests each month for each member expires when the federal COVID health emergency ends on May 11th. WBUR's Priyanka Dale-McCluskey reports. Blue Cross, Tufts, and Harvard Pilgrim all say they won't cover COVID tests after May 11th unless the test is ordered by a clinician. Julia Raifman is assistant professor at Boston University School of Public Health. She's concerned the change will make rapid tests unaffordable and will have a ripple effect. This will certainly reduce people's ability to prevent COVID transmission, and it might end up delaying treatment for people who don't want to use an expensive test until it's already too late to get treatment. Medicaid programs will continue to provide free tests until fall 2024. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Priyanka Dayal-McCluskey. A project to provide clean energy to more than one million Massachusetts homes is being allowed to move forward. A jury in Maine today sided in favor of the project developer Central Maine Power. The utility took legal action after a 2021 referendum by Maine voters blocked construction of the transmission line that would run through their state. The line will deliver hydroelectric power from Quebec to Massachusetts. The Worcester Regional Transit Authority is extending its fare-free program until July of next year. Here's WBUR's Dave Faniff. The authority's services have been fare-free since March of 2020. The board voted today to extend the offer another year. Authority Administrator Dennis Lipka says money from the Federal CARES Act is paying for the free trips. This is across the entire spectrum of our services. It's not only the fixed bus route service, but it's our paratransit rides and our Council on Aging services are all fare-free. Lipka anticipates 3.6 million riders this year, a 12% jump over 2019. The authority serves 37 communities in central Massachusetts. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Dave Faniff. One of Boston's most historic events will be commemorated tonight in the North End. The Old North Church will reenact the lantern lighting of 1775 that effectively helped kick off the American Revolution. Nikki Stewart oversees the preservation and programming at the church. There will be fife and drum music. We'll have some reenactors. Uh, Paul Revere will make an appearance as well. And then, of course, we'll light the lantern signals and folks will gather and, you know, have a little bit of a birthday party for the church. The Old North Church is turning 300 this year. The lantern lighting signaled Paul Revere and William Dawes to ride on horseback to Lexington and Concord to alert the towns that the British were coming. It's 3, oh, 435. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Bass, Berry & Sims Healthcare Law Practice, advising academic medical centers and healthcare providers on complex legal matters nationwide. More at BassBerry.com. 
gorgeous day out there today. Look for tonight, partly cloudy skies falling to the mid-40s should be dry. Tomorrow, dry, breezy, sunny with temperatures in the mid-50s. And for the weekend, different. Cloudy skies both Saturday and Sunday. Could have some rain on Sunday. Temperatures in the 50s. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. And from Indeed, committed to helping businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates. Businesses can invite candidates to apply, then schedule and conduct virtual interviews all in one place. Indeed.com slash NPR. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Scott Detrow in Washington. Coming up, we'll hear the latest developments around an anti-homosexuality bill in Uganda. But first, a test of the world's most powerful rocket has ended with a bang, also cheering. No one was on board SpaceX's Starship as it made its first launch from Boca Chica, Texas this morning, and that is important because it exploded about four minutes after takeoff. Despite blowing up, SpaceX is calling the test a win. From member station WMFE, Brendan Byrne is here to explain. So, Brendan, what do we know about the launch failure today? Well, Scott, first I think we need to get a sense of just how big this rocket is. So Starship and its super heavy booster are 400 feet tall and carry something like 10 million pounds of propellant, and it's heavy. It's made out of stainless steel. So this booster uses 33 engines all firing in unison to give the vehicle a big lift off the pad and hopefully into orbit. Well, this morning the rocket did leave the pad with twice as much thrust as that was used for the Saturn V launches that sent humans to the moon a half century ago. But about, yeah, it's a lot. And about three minutes after liftoff, we could see the entire vehicle start to tumble And by four minutes, it exploded in what SpaceX engineers call a rapid, unplanned disassembly. (laughs) (laughs) SpaceX says multiple engines went out during flight, and the rocket's flight termination was activated, and the rocket essentially self-destructed. Here's SpaceX's John Innsbrucker. But now this was a development test. This is the first test flight of Starship, and the goal was to gather the data, and as we said, clear the pad and get ready to go again. So you never know exactly what's going to happen. But as we promised, excitement is guaranteed. First of all, I just want to say rapid unplanned disassembly should be in the Hall of Fame of PR. It's a great term, right? (laughs) But, you know, let's talk about this, though. SpaceX is saying this really was a success. We heard the employees cheering. Explain to us how a rocket exploding is a good thing. Yeah, as strange as it sounds, Scott, this is the way SpaceX operates, right? It pushes its hardware to the limit, explosions even, and takes those lessons learned to the next version of the spacecraft. So ahead of this launch, SpaceX tempered those expectations and said as long as Starship left the pad, this would be a win. Space policy analyst Laura Forsick is calling this mission a successful failure uh, and that it really exemplifies SpaceX's design process, develop rapidly, push hardware to the limits, and learn from when things inevitably go boom. Each accident, each anomaly gives them further data as to what to improve so that when they finally have payloads on board, when they finally have astronauts on board, they are going to have a successful launch and landing. SpaceX CEO Elon Musk says there is another booster waiting in the wings, a newer design that will hopefully be more successful, another Starship ready to go for another test launch 
in just the next few months. That's pretty fast. What's the rush? Yeah, so so SpaceX has plans for Starship. It's set to launch the company's Starlink satellites. These are the thousands that will circle the globe with internet access, key to SpaceX's revenue. And NASA has contracted SpaceX to use the Starship as a landing system to bring astronauts to the moon. So the agency is working on returning to the moon with astronauts this decade, and Starship is key to that happening. About 30 seconds left. Tell us what else SpaceX will be doing. So they'll be reviewing the data from what we could see this morning. I was reported from SpaceX. Some of those engines failed to ignite or went out mid-flight. Engineers are going to get to the bottom of it. We saw a lot of reports of debris, so they'll be checking the uh, the launch pad. Mm-hmm. But despite the explosion, uh, NASA's administrator, Bill Nelson, congratulated SpaceX on the test flight and says he's looking forward to the next one. That is Brendan Byrne from WMFE. Brendan, thank you so much for joining us. Anytime. For the LGBTQ community in Uganda, it's an anxious time. Last month, the parliament there passed what's been described as one of the most extreme anti-LGBTQ laws in the world. Today, the president sent the bill back to parliament asking for amendments. Under its current form, it would introduce many new criminal offenses that are punishable by imprisonment and even the death penalty. Halima Athumani reports from Kampala. For Queen Kalala, being a queer woman in Uganda means hiding, hiding from her family who think she is cast. I have to hide for the sake of my children. Queen Kalala is one of many queer women who is currently housed at this shelter in one of the capital Kampala's suburbs. We haven't used her real name as she fears retribution. But most of all, she worries her two children may be taken away from her permanently. For now, they are with her parents. I feel like I have failed my children because I am supposed to protect them, but I have to give them away because I'm gay. For years, the 29-year-old tried to hide her real identity, to live up to Ugandan society's expectations where being queer is frowned on and same-sex acts are criminalized. She married twice. But hiding who she really was became exhausting. When you're gay, you, you're nothing. Like you are just cancelled into the society. And now the gay community here faces a greater threat. <laughs> to cheers and singing in parliament last month, Ugandan MPs voted overwhelmingly for the anti-homosexuality bill, which includes life imprisonment and the death penalty for some offences and encourages people to report on those who identify as gay. But the backlash from the business and international community was so great, it has forced President Yoram Seveni to send the bill back to parliament for amendments. I have been threatened with stoning. Ugandan MP Fox Odoi Oyeolowo was one of only two legislators who voted against the bill that night. Since then, he has faced severe criticism and personal attacks. There were demonstrations organized in my constituency and uh, they said if I step there, they will undress me to check if I have male genitals. This is the second attempt by the Ugandan parliament to pass harsher laws criminalizing homosexuality. You have an overwhelming, loud and prejudicial mouthpieces from the religious community, from hate mongers. We have over time witnessed the rise of Christian fundamentalism. Some of this was evident at a two-day event held last month on the outskirts of the capital, Kampala. Claiming to promote family values, President Museveni was the key speaker. I am a homosexual. 
The two-day event was attended by politicians from home and abroad, including the Russian ambassador and groups such as the U.S. evangelical Christian organization Family Watch International, all united behind one anti-gay agenda. Why is fate taking me back to that time of me pretending to be what I am not? For Queen Kalala and other members of the gay community, their lives are still in an awful limbo. If it becomes a law, of course we have to look for a backup plan. And for now, that backup plan is to keep hiding. For NPR News, I'm Halima Athmani in Kampala, Uganda. listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Filmmaker Guy Ritchie is chiefly known for light entertainments, from trickily edited Sherlock Holmes movies to live-action remakes of Disney's Aladdin to fast-paced crime movies like Lock, Stock, and Two Smoking Barrels. Critic Bob Mondello says Ritchie's new film, titled Guy Ritchie's The Covenant, marks a change of tone and subject matter, but not a change of pace. A checkpoint in Afghanistan. John, you have tellies approaching. A driver ordered out of his truck and slowly backing away. An explosion taking the life of an American soldier and his interpreter. Five minutes into the movie and a war that's been grinding for 17 years has taken two more lives. Sergeant John Kinley, played by a watchful Jake Gyllenhaal, needs a new interpreter. He gravitates to a former Afghan mechanic with a rep for being headstrong. Patronizing me, Ahmed? No, no. Played by Dar Salim. I would never patronize an officer, sir. Well, Ahmed, this unit specializes in finding Taliban munitions and explosive sites. Sadly, we lost our last interpreter. Understood. And it's Ahmed, sir. Well, it's sergeant, not sir. Kindred spirits. Ahmed joined up because the Americans promised that Afghan interpreters, in return for loyal service, would get U.S. visas for themselves and their families. He has a pregnant wife, a rationale for surviving, and as Kinley will discover, a sixth sense when it comes to danger. Stop the vehicle, sergeant. We don't want to go down this road. You're out of your bounds, Ahmed. You're here to translate. Actually, I'm here to interpret. Ahmed interprets them through crisis after crisis until one day, many miles from base, they're overrun and Kinley gets grievously wounded. And what's been a straight-up action film becomes a desperate odyssey, Ahmed dodging half the Taliban as he drags Kinley on a makeshift stretcher across a mountain range to the American base. And for what? Kinley's sent home to his wife and kids. Ahmed discovers that the promise, the contract, the covenant regarding U.S. visas for his family is less than ironclad, as Kinley puts it to anyone who'll listen back home. He's hiding in a hole somewhere. I should be in that hole. But nobody's listening. 
So far, so Guy Ritchie. Action gritty and explosive, dialogue as muscular as it is sparse, this writer-director has a macho, gung-ho thing he's known for, and he's still doing it, admittedly with fewer quips than usual. The substance of The Covenant, though, is unlike most of Ritchie's work, an earnest look at responsibility. Responsibility personal and national, a man determined to repay a debt on which his country is reneging. Kinley goes on a tear to get Ahmed what he was promised, begging then threatening to the point that he's called on the carpet by his superiors. You think if I could be shot of this debt, I wouldn't be? You think if I could just go through the usual channels, I wouldn't? That is not how this debt works. It demands a result, not an appeasement. There is a hook in me. Will that hook drag him back to Afghanistan to pay the debt? Well, it's Guy Ritchie's The Covenant, so yes, in the movies, one righteous warrior can right the wrongs of a nation. Would that that were possible in real life? I'm Bob Mandela. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in 15 minutes, Senator John Fetterman is back on Capitol Hill after he spent 44 days in the hospital for clinical depression. We'll speak with him coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Office of the Massachusetts State Treasurer. Check to see if you have unclaimed property at findmassmoney.com and Cambridge School of Culinary Arts in Porter Square with private cooking events for team building, family reunions, birthday parties, or nights out. CambridgeCulinary.com. Red Sox have picked up another series win as they topped the Minnesota Twins 11-5 in the final game of their series at Fenway today. Boston fans get a break from playoff action tonight. After three straight nights of postseason games for the Celts and Bruins, both teams are off tonight. They return to action tomorrow. Celts will be on the road in Atlanta for Game 3 of their playoff series against the Hawks Friday night. Boston leads the series two games to zero. And tomorrow night, the Bruins will play the Panthers in Florida. That series is tied at one game apiece. Still 63 degrees now in Boston at 450. Turn your old car into new news. Support the programming you love by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Learn how at WBUR.org cars. WBUR supporters include Waterstone, a new luxury, independent, and assisted living community with social and wellness programs and fine dining on Watertown Street in Lexington, waterstonelexington.com, and Gore Place and the 36th Annual Sheep Shearing Festival, sheep shearing and herding demos, fiber artists, and more, this Saturday in Waltham, goreplace.org. I'm Yasmin Amr, and for Tiziana Deering. Tomorrow on Radio Boston, Massachusetts Senator Elizabeth Warren joins us to talk about a pending case in front of the Supreme Court that could impact access to a popular drug used in medical abortions. What's at stake and how that could impact abortion providers in the Commonwealth? That's Radio Boston, tomorrow at 11, only on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. 
This is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. When you listen to Allie McGurk's music, it probably won't sound the same when you listen to it a second time. The 34-year-old artist has perfected a mashup of jazz, blues, and classic rock. McGurk started making music and performing as a child in Concord, Massachusetts. Now she sings about social issues, love, and loss. We could have it all. McGurk released her first EP in 2016, and since then she's been nominated for seven Boston Music Awards and a New England Music Award. She's made it onto countless best-of lists. This summer she'll play at Boston Calling, one of the most celebrated music festivals in the country. For our series on rising local musicians, Sound On, WBR's Lauren Williams says McGurk's fearlessness in her artistry deserves attention. Ali McGurk's music melts. Her melodies sound like honey, smooth, and a little tangy. Her style is loose, but not excessively so. When you're by my side. She can make her voice light, but she can also be brash and bold. If you listen to McGurk's discography, you'll hear everything, from soul to smooth R&B to rock. She's not afraid of change, and I think that's what makes her music so engaging and genuinely fun to listen to. Some artists might say, I have to write sad jazz music forever because it's my brand, but McGurk's tastes have changed, and so have her ideas. In her second album, she gets bluesier and louder. McGurk says that when she was a kid, her mom would know she was awake when a little voice would come floating down the hallway to the tune of De La Soul or Stevie Wonder or Tom Waits, music they would have played the day before. A family friend noticed how musically inclined she was and helped her record a little album. She was only six. It included, um, you gotta be bad, you gotta be bold. I don't know if you remember that one. That was 1994 hit single, You Gotta Be, from neo-soul singer Desiree. McGurk studied jazz at UMass Amherst, which is when she started writing songs. She does write about typical things like love and heartbreak, but she's a really deep thinker and doesn't set that part of her aside just to produce a hit. She also sings about social and political issues like feminism and climate change. I think and worry every day in an ordinary way. What have we done? 
In her first album, one of McGurk's songs hints at a painful end to a relationship, but the lyrics could just as easily be about the destruction of the planet. The catch is, they're both. So many lies We gotta work through What have we done was really just like processing the basics of like, ouch, this hurts to be living in this environment. In her second album, McGurk continues to expand on her ideas about the world. In this next song called The Work, she's frustrated with all the division in our country and political debates that seem to go nowhere. I'm so tired of explaining it in a way that you can understand. Doesn't give you something to defend You can never take it on the chin But I saw you read the news today Pulled out the parts and proved your pain She wrote the song in 2017 at the height of a kind of political unraveling in the U.S. At the time, she was exploring her own political perspectives, and she didn't want to leave that out of the music, even if it can be a tricky thing to push commercially. That song took so long to write because I wanted to say something, but I also like didn't want to say too much or misrepresent that exasperation that I have with people. <laughs> now the lyric is like, I'm so tired of explaining it, and I'm actually like happy to talk to people at this point if they want to. Her music has evolved and will keep evolving along with her shifting perspectives on the state of the world. In that song you just heard, McGurk takes an active stance, declaring that we all have to put in effort to bring about progress. She sings each word with conviction, even knowing that she might feel differently about how to tackle hard conversations and social ills later down the road. It's a testament to how seriously she takes being an artist, McGurk sees her music as a vessel for self-expression, but just as importantly for ideas. Check out videos, pictures, and Lauren's full write-up on Allie McGurk at WBUR.org. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Fisher Investments. Fisher Investments' team of specialists tailor portfolios to each client's long-term goals. Learn more at fisherinvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. From Progressive, Progressive Commercial Auto Insurance protects the cars, trucks, and vans that work to keep small businesses moving forward, including protection while running errands and other tasks at progressivecommercial.com. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement to support digestive health containing a probiotic strain developed by gastroenterologists with 20 years of research. 
More at AlignProbiotics.com. This is WBUR. It's such a beautiful afternoon out there. Partly cloudy skies overnight tonight, falling to about 44. Tomorrow, heading back to the mid-50s, bright sunshine to close out the work week. We could have some clouds and then rain moving in over the weekend. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Innuendo, providing shading systems for businesses and homes. Their design team can help you find window treatments for light, heat, privacy, and glare issues. Innuendo Natick and Innuendo.com. And The Huntington with Joy and Pandemic, a new play by Taylor Mack, directed by Loretta Greco. Opens April 21st at the Calderwood BCA, HuntingtonTheater.org. I'm reporter Deborah Becker, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org, WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Pennsylvania's Democratic Senator John Fetterman is back on Capitol Hill after he was hospitalized for 44 days for clinical depression. He says the Senate race took a toll on his health. I wasn't realizing I wasn't eating. I I didn't realize that I wasn't really drinking much. I I dropped 25 pounds. It's Thursday, April 20th. This is All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, a roundup of happenings in science, the music of the Earth's magnetosphere, a mission to Jupiter's icy moons, and a potential runaway supermassive black hole. Also ahead, a conversation with a photographer about his decision to reject a photography award he got for an image he created using artificial intelligence. And Boston Marathon organizers issue a statement after a group of mostly black spectators was blocked by police from the course in Newton on Monday. The BAA says, quote, it's on us. The time is 5.01. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. The White House says it has looked through the Republican plan for dealing with the nation's debt ceiling, labeling the plan put forth by House Speaker Kevin McCarthy as one where the math is simple but unforgiving. White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre saying the GOP plan to trim non-defense spending by 22 percent would hurt large numbers of Americans. Not only would the Speaker's proposal cut funding for our veterans, it would repeal the Inflation Reduction Act's investment in manufacturing in clean energy. Investments that have created 100,000 manufacturing jobs, many of them in Republican-led states and congressional districts. The White House in a draft analysis says the plan would hurt working families and affect the nation's economic future. McCarthy is insisting on deep spending cuts as a condition for raising the nation's borrowing limit. President Biden says those discussions should be separate. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen said in a speech today the U.S. wants China's economy to grow and be innovative, but also to play by the rules. As NPR's John Woolwich explains, when it comes to U.S. economic policy toward China, Yellen says national security comes first. In a speech at Johns Hopkins University, Yellen was clear as she laid out the priorities in America's economic approach to China. First, we will secure our national security interests and those of our allies and partners and we will protect human rights. The U.S. has adopted a number of measures in the name of security in recent years that have taken aim at Chinese companies or industries. Beijing says they're unfair, but Yellen says these targeted actions are motivated by security, and the goal is not to gain competitive economic advantage or hobble China. Yellen also said China and the U.S. need to find ways to work together on global challenges, including climate change and debt overhang. 
John Ruich, NPR News. North Dakota's governor signed a bill that makes it a crime to provide gender-affirming medical treatment to transgender youth. As NPR's Melissa Block reports, the charges range from a misdemeanor to a felony. The North Dakota law, signed by Republican Governor Doug Burgum, makes it a felony for doctors to perform gender transition surgeries on minors with a punishment of up to 10 years in prison. However, the governor acknowledged that doctors testified they don't perform such surgeries on minors in North Dakota. Providing puberty blockers or cross-sex hormones to those under 18 is now considered a misdemeanor with a punishment of up to 360 days in prison. Exempted are health care providers who began treatment for minors before the bill became law. North Dakota joins more than a dozen states with laws or policies that restrict gender-affirming care for trans youth. Several of those laws have been blocked by courts. Melissa Block, NPR News. Stocks stumbled on Wall Street today in part due to vehicle maker Tesla's lackluster first quarter earnings numbers. The Nasdaq was down 97 points. The Dow lost 110 points today. You're listening to NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. The organizers of the Boston Marathon say they need to do a better job creating a welcoming environment for black and indigenous people and communities of color. The Boston Athletic Association said today that it met with two groups who were concerned about how Newton police treated them during the race on Monday. Videos shared on social media show police used bicycles to create a barricade between the course and the mostly black spectators. Police said they were responding to complaints from marathon organizers that members of the group were walking onto the course. A search is underway off the coast of Rockport for four men after their fishing boat was found capsized this afternoon. The boat was reported missing late yesterday. It didn't return from a day trip out of Hampton, New Hampshire. Coast Guard Petty Officer Ryan Noel says the crews are intensifying their search. The District 1 Command Center has also requested the use of a C-130 from the Atlantic area to search this evening and overnight. So we have a lot of assets out there, a lot of coasties looking for these four people overboard and hoping something positive comes out of it. Noel says debris was found in the water early this afternoon, but no sign yet of any people. The Healy administration says it's taking steps to help the state transition to clean energy. Energy and Environmental Affairs Secretary Rebecca Tepper today announced the establishment of two commissions. One will review new energy projects, are up, uh, sped, speed up permitting. The other board will set targets for offshore wind development and create a strategy for economic development. By law, Massachusetts must achieve net zero greenhouse gas emissions by 2050. A jury in Maine today cleared the way for a project that will provide Massachusetts with enough hydroelectricity to power more than one million homes. A jury ruled in favor of the owner of a billion-dollar transmission line through the state of Maine. It will deliver the electricity from Quebec to Massachusetts. Maine voters blocked the construction in a 2021 referendum. Cambridge-based Moderna and IBM announced today they're teaming up to advanced mRNA science. They plan to use quantum computing and newly developed artificial intelligence to create future mRNA medications. Quantum computing is an emerging technology that uses quantum mechanics to solve problems too complex for classical uh, computers. In the forecast, gorgeous out there right now. Overnight tonight, partly cloudy, falling to the mid-40s. Tomorrow, sunny, breezy, right around the mid-50s once again. Then for the weekend, should stay in the 50s. Right now, it's looking like we should get a lot of gray. Cloudy on Saturday, rainy on Sunday, some high winds on Sunday as well. 61 degrees now in Boston at 5.07. 
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Wallace Foundation, working to develop and share practices that can improve learning and enrichment for young people and the vitality of the arts for everyone. Ideas and information at wallacefoundation.org. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Scott Detrow in Washington. Pennsylvania Senator John Fetterman is back in the U.S. Senate. Thank you, Senator. And now I now recognize Senator Warnock for five minutes. Thank you so very much, uh, Mr. Chair, and it's great to see you back. During the pandemic, the Democrat chaired a subcommittee hearing yesterday. It's his first week back on Capitol Hill since a 44-day hospital stay to treat depression. When Fetterman walked through the Senate halls this week with Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, he was the center of attention. There was no avoiding the cameras. But Fetterman had been the center of attention since he first arrived in January, at a moment when he didn't want to be. Running against TV personality Mehmet Oz amid the possibility of helping Democrats secure a true majority had already raised his national profile. Then, in the middle of that bruising race, Fetterman suffered a serious stroke. He found himself navigating new challenges with auditory processing, all while debating, campaigning, and eventually winning. Do you solemnly swear that you will support and defend the Constitution of the United States? In January, Fetterman began his term. But the satisfaction you might expect one to feel being sworn in as the Commonwealth's junior senator? I do. Congratulations, Senator. Congratulations. It just wasn't there at all, according to Fetterman. Like, I felt lost, you know, and I wasn't elated. I wasn't happy about it. He realized something was seriously wrong, something besides the effects of the stroke. So he took a remarkable step for a politician, openly checking himself into the hospital to treat depression. Late word today that Pennsylvania Senator John Fetterman has checked himself into the hospital. He will continue getting voluntary treatment on a voluntary basis. Senator Fetterman has experienced depression on and off throughout his life. After six weeks of treatment at Walter Reed National Medical Center's neuropsychology unit, Fetterman's doctor told him his depression was in remission. Fetterman sat down with All Things Considered this afternoon for the first extended interview since his return to the Capitol. His team had decorated the spare, windowless, temporary space assigned to new senators with posters of Philadelphia sports mascots Gritty and the Fanatic, plus a large 420 banner. The closed captioning Fetterman uses to process speech was displayed on a big-screen TV. It was his first day wearing brand-new hearing aids. And Fetterman, having recently learned that he can vote without donning a suit, was comfortable in his trademark Carhartt hoodie and gray gym shorts. So you're back. You chaired your first subcommittee hearing this week. It's been a full week. Mm-hmm. Uh, your, yeah. your colleagues gave you a standing ovation when you came back into the Democratic caucus meeting. How's everything feeling? I, I can't tell you how moving it was to me. Now, I would have been blown away if it was just, a, if it was just, just warm, but an ova- a standing ovation and, and hugs. And I'm so grateful to our colleagues. Uh, and to, to Leader Schumer also had it so that I was able, it made it possible for me to be there, setting the tone from the top down that, that, that you know, that, that either me or anyone in this kind of situation, you know, they're, it's, it's, it's one of us and we need to provide the opportunity to get healthy. How different did it feel coming into the Senate, being in the Senate this week compared to when you first arrived in January? <laughs> it was just a big smile. You know, I've really missed being being here. When I was in the throes of depression, to be 100% honest, uh, I was not the kind of senator that, that was deserved by Pennsylvania. I wasn't the, the kind of par- partner that I, 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 to my wife, uh, Giselle, 
or to to my children, you know, uh, Carl, Grace, and, and August. It wasn't the kind of father. One of the best sentences that I ever heard in my life was was my doctors just sitting when we were in a in a meeting, and they said, "John, we believe your depression is in remission." Yeah. And at first, I didn't I didn't believe that, and now my depression is in remission, and that's why coming back to to home and coming back to the Senate has been joy. You've said you want to use this moment to talk about mental health, to talk about depression. Can you tell somebody who's maybe lucky enough to have not had to deal with depression what it felt like in those moments early on in the Senate term? You've talked about feeling empty being sworn into office. It should be this this big moment in your life, and you said it didn't feel that way at all. Yeah. I, you know, I, I'm, I'm grateful to have the ability to try to pay it forward. Yeah. And I would just say this. I try to be kind of, I want to be, say the kinds of things that I would have heard years ago that got me, you know, into action. Yeah. And I would tell anybody listening to, to this is if you suffer from de- de- depression or you, you have a, no, a loved one, you know, please let them know. Please know that you, you don't need to just suffer without treatment. If I'd have done that years ago, I would not have had to put my family with that if I'd have gotten help. When you were dealing with depression for so long, how would you characterize how you were personally dealing with it? Were you denying that it was even there? Or were you saying, this is here, this is a real thing, but I'm going to push through it, I'm going to ignore it? Um, I was... I was so depressed that I didn't even realize how I was depressed. Yeah, <laughs> I didn't even understand it. This, to me, that just became, you know, the, the the new normal. I I wasn't realizing I wasn't eating. I wasn't eating. I I didn't realize that I wasn't really dr- drinking much. I, I dropped twenty five pounds, um, and uh, was you know sometimes would say things incoherent things. I knew I was something was wrong. They knew that that I was not wasn't right. Uh, but even at that moment, I was still kind of, I pushed back a, about it too sometimes, saying, are you sure? I don't really need it. I'm good. Okay, wait, no, 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 I got it. Because yeah. then when, when, when it was really come to that choice, like you need to, I'm going to walk in here and, and, and sign myself in, I thought for a second, I'm like, oh, no, no, wait a minute. I, I, I'm fine. All right, never mind. I got this. I got this. I got this. I got this. I'm noticing that you're, you're being really reflective and looking back, saying I wasn't, I wasn't doing this the right way with my family. I wasn't approaching this job the right way. I was ignoring this. What did you learn about yourself during the six weeks in the hospital that you didn't know before? For for my family, it was hard because I, I was I, I I was I was ashamed. Yeah, I was ashamed, uh, and that was probably the single hardest thing in in all that is, is when I think about that. Um, did you talk to your family about those feelings, and what did they tell you? Yeah, no, I, the day I was signed in to the hospital was my son's 14th birthday. And I, I think back when I was 14 years old, what if this would have been what happened to me? But the but, uh, only thing he wanted to do was he just wanted to go to a restaurant. Mm-hmm. And, and, and my wife was on his way to take him there, and she, uh, they all had to turn it around. Yeah. And my fear is is that his birthday will you remember as the day that dad was was signed in. And but in the six in the six weeks was about me kind of 
redeeming, trying to redeem myself. Yeah, you know, in their eyes, and and, and they were never harsh on me. They they just created a path to a safe place. But but I felt like I didn't deserve to have like a, a, a safe place there. You still sound very hard on yourself. No, no, I I, I wasn't hard on me because they you know the family was put through a really difficult. This is really hard for myself. My oldest son had yeah. a conversation where he, he was having a hard time understanding why, Dad, why aren't you depressed? Like, you ran and you you won. And, and I, uh, I, I tried to explain to them, like, you know, geez, you know, Carl, like, I, I had a stroke and, and, you know, all of these ads and everything. And, uh, and he's like, but, but aren't we enough? Aren't aren't we enough? And and when when she, when when he asked, aren't we enough? Is this is that they should be that they are enough? Yeah. But at that time, I wasn't able to not feel this, this kind of depression, and 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 that's you know those six weeks was was for me was like every week was about me trying to work back enough. Uh, to to be to be worthy. Yeah, I want to use the rest of the interview to talk about what comes next and talk about how you're going to approach approach your job now that you're back in the Senate. And I wanted to start by just taking a moment to ask you about some of the criticism and also some of the concerns. Uh, you you said yourself a moment ago that that when you were depressed, you didn't feel like you were the senator that Pennsylvania needed. Uh, I, I'm paraphrasing, but. I mean, the central attack against you during the campaign was you couldn't do the job due to your health problems. Then you got here and you had to spend six weeks in the hospital. And I'm wondering, do you feel yourself any extra pressure at this moment to say, hey, Pennsylvania, I'm here to represent you? Yeah, certainly. Any, and, you know, but I bet you some of those people that are criticizing me know somebody or they might be someone that, that faces depression in their lives as well. Yeah. And, and I just always try to tell people by saying it's not a Democratic or a Republican area. It's, it's, a hum, it's humanity. And, you know, there's people, from, no matter where you live, no matter what your political views are, is, is that, that you suffer from depression or you know somebody there. And, and uh, you know what a critic of me was? It's my wife. Yeah. She said, you have depression. You got it. You should do something to it. So, so she, and she was right. Yeah. <laughs> you know, just because, you know, like I thought every night when I was laying in bed, uh, when I was in the hospital, we were like, why if I just would have, <laughs> what if I just would have done, done something about this before, you know, and I, I could kick myself and I guess think about, you know, you know, uh, my family wouldn't have put through it, and, and even again, you know, my constituents. But but right now, now that I am back, to me, I'm really committed to paying it forward on all of that, and letting people know to anyone that that has any of these feelings, you know, you know, there's 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 a path, and you can get better. Senator John Fetterman, Democrat from Pennsylvania, back in the United States Senate. Thank you so much for speaking with us. Ah, uh, thank you. Yes.
This is All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in about 15 minutes on All Things Considered, House Republicans want to add a new work requirement to safety net programs in exchange for raising the debt ceiling. But critics say hunger and poverty are already bad enough for those who need the programs. It's 518. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by La Cuchara Cafe in Melrose. Modern Latin American fare for those seeking flavorful, healthy choices. Catering your office lunch in Greater Boston. LaCuchara.com. Wall Street had losses across the board today. The Dow fell one-third of a percent. S&P lost six-tenths of a percent. The Nasdaq fell eight-tenths of a percent. Massachusetts Attorney General Andrea Campbell is accusing a pair of Duncan franchises of violating child labor laws. She's accusing Courtney Donuts and its manager of failing to get a valid work permit and allowing minors to work after 8 p.m. With adult, without adult supervision. Somerset Donut Express and its owners are also accused of working minors for more than nine hours a day and later than 10 p.m. Campbell says she has issued citations that total more than $370,000. The franchises operate 27 stores and communities, including Fall River, Devons, and Dartmouth. The forecast is coming up. WBUR supporters include Weston Nurseries, offering a broad selection of landscape-sized trees, shrubs, perennials, and native plants in Hopkinton, Chelmsford, and Hingham. WestonNurseries.com. A nice night coming up. Partly cloudy skies falling to the mid-40s. Then for tomorrow should be sunny, breezy. Temperatures a lot like today's in the mid-50s. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Bank of America, offering access to resources and digital tools designed to help local to global companies make moves for their businesses. Learn more at bankofamerica.com slash banking for business. And from Indeed, a hiring platform committed to helping businesses of all sizes. Businesses can invite candidates to apply, then schedule and conduct interviews in one place. Indeed.com slash NPR. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Scott Detrow. And I'm Elsa Chang. Time now for some science news from our friends at NPR science podcast, Shortwave. Emily Kwong and Regina Barber host the podcast, and they are here with us now. Hey to both of you. Hi. Hey. So I know that you two have been combing through the headlines, looking at the latest journals and social media, and... Both of you, I understand, have picked out three science stories for us to hear more about this week. Yeah, and it just so happens that this week, all three stories we wanted to bring to you take place in space. Woohoo! Yes, different realms of space at different distances oh. from Earth. The first is about what things sound like just beyond our atmosphere. Then we're going to venture a bit further to some distant moons. And finally, we take a pit stop by something NASA has called an invisible monster on the loose barreling through intergalactic galactic space. Oh my God, that sounds so ominous. <laughs> I am ready for liftoff. Let's do this. Emily, what is first? Go. Elsa, for our first story, we're blasting off from Earth in three, two, one. <laughs> 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 to the invisible bubble that protects our planet, the magnetosphere, what? which is just a magnetic field surrounding our Earth and deflecting most 
of the charged particles from the sun away from our planet. Okay, that sounds vital. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's a good summary. It's like crucial for life on Earth because, you know, that sun is a tempestuous star. It's constantly emitting this stream of particles known as solar wind. And sometimes the solar wind mixes with the gases in our upper atmosphere in a visible way, a.k.a. the aurora borealis. Oh, the northern lights. I still have never been able to see them in person. Me neither. <laughs> I hope you do. Me too. So you can get to witness their, their gassy little dance up there. Mm. Um, but, you know, now that interaction, Elsa, between Earth and the sun, it's not only visible, it's audible too. So back in 2007, NASA launched five satellites to study Earth's magnetic field, including solar wind striking Earth's magnetosphere, causing it to vibrate like the strings of a harp. Wow. And now a new NASA-funded community science project is turning that data into sound. Listen to this. Okay, no, 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 no. It's that's an important caveat. It doesn't sound like that up there. Tell me the caveat. Uh, <laughs> sun on Earth vibrations—they're ultra low frequency. They're way too low for human hearing. So the team behind this project, which is called HARP, stands for Heliophysics Audified Colon Resonances in Plasma, is speeding up those frequencies and converting them into sound waves. So all those whooshes and squiggles, the music of Sun and Earth can be heard by you and me and everyone. That is amazing. So you said that this is a community science project. What does that mean? Yeah. So this is like the coolest part to me. The HARP team has built an interactive tool for anyone around the world to listen to the waves. And it's not just for fun. The researchers, they say like we humans are sometimes better than machines at picking out unique sonic features in these recordings. And those patterns can help the scientists understand space weather, how the solar wind interacts with Earth's magnetic field, all kinds of things. So you can go help them. You can find these recordings at their website, listen.spacescience.org. Mm, sounds like a good date activity. <laughs> that's, that's something an audio person would say. <laughs> but yes, Elsa, completely. Like, it's one of the reasons I wanted to bring you this story. Um, science doesn't just happen in academia or in a laboratory. Uh, sometimes it can happen on date night. Absolutely. Okay, Gina, shortwave scientist in residence. Yep. For our second story, we are traveling, I understand, further into the solar system, all the way to Jupiter? Yep. One of my favorites. <laughs> Me too, because of the big red spot. But, yeah. but why Jupiter in this case? So last week, the European Space Agency just launched a spacecraft called JUICE, short for mm. Jupiter Icy Moons Explorer. I love all the acronyms in this conversation. JUICE. <laughs> Astronomers love our acronyms. We try really hard, believe me. <laughs> okay. So in this case, Jupiter Icy Moons Explorer. And I guess they were going for JUICE because... Where there is ice, there is water, which could mean life. Well, yeah? yeah, yeah, that's the question, right? Like, because we know that three of the moons of Jupiter house water, Ganymede, Callisto, and my favorite moon, Europa. And if you have water and you have a heat source, say, from the moon itself, in the case of these, like, large moons, then you almost have the ingredients for life. Okay, but I am not the astrophysicist here. You are. So what I'm thinking, tell me if I'm wrong, is... <laughs> 
Don't you need, like, organic material like carbon or nitrogen for life to actually happen? Yeah, I mean, that is absolutely right. And this mission, that's one of the things that they're going to be looking for. JUICE will be orbiting the moons, investigating how big these oceans are, what they're made out of, and imaging the surfaces of these moons, all in search for where there could be life. That's so exciting. So when is JUICE going to get up there? Yeah, it's not going to get there until 2031. Oh. <laughs> But this mission and another one from NASA called the Europa Clipper are basically my dreams come true. Like, they're both doing the same kind of science at the same time, seeing if these moons are habitable for life. Okay, so we have visited the magnetosphere, a moon. What is our third and final stop on this whole space voyage? It is a runaway, supermassive black hole. Oh, my God. That sounds metal. It is so metal. It's so metal. It It was discovered also kind of by accident um, (laughs) by a team led by Yale University scientists who published their findings in the Astrophysical Journal Letters earlier this month. Okay, Elsa, this story is amazing. It first looked like a smudge in an image from the Hubble Space Telescope. They were like, what is that? But looking more closely, they realized the object in question was likely a supermassive black hole gone rogue. Whoa. Yeah, uh, listeners can't see me, but I'm just nodding my head. I'm so excited because, (laughs) well, let's first, let's talk about a black hole. Basically, a black hole is just like a pothole in the 4D fabric of space-time. And there's a massive one at the center of our galaxy, actually. But what's weird about this one is it's sprinting through our universe all on its own, not really part of any galaxy, and it's possibly very, very big. Just how big? Yeah, roughly 20 million times more massive than our sun. And it's leaving a trail of these newborn stars in its wake, a a trail approximately 200,000 light years long. And wait, Emily, you had said the word rogue. Like, what did you mean by that? Where did this maybe black hole even come from? Mm, Okay, I'm going to let Gina explain this. Well, galaxies merge all the time. Our galaxy, the Milky Way, will actually merge with our neighbor galaxy, the Andromeda galaxy. And that's going to happen in about 5 billion years. Hmm. But... Remember, our galaxy has this supermassive black hole at its center, and so do many other galaxies. So researchers believe that this rogue black hole came from a merger of more than two galaxies. Maybe a third one came in, and that interaction shot out a central black hole of one of those galaxies. That is so cool. And did we know black holes even behave this way? Should we be concerned? No, we, we don't We don't need to worry. First, this supermassive black hole that's like all by itself shooting around, it's billions of light years away. And second, there isn't a candidate near us that would affect us like that. But as far as this behavior, we've seen stars form from mergers before, like galaxies merging into each other. But this is the first time we've seen a black hole create stars in its wake. Dang. That was Emily Kwong and Regina Barber, the two hosts of NPR's science podcast, Shortwave, where you can learn about new discoveries, everyday mysteries, and the science behind the headlines. Emily and Regina, thank you so much and see you next time. Thank you. Bye. It was a pleasure. Thank you so much for having us. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up, a photographer used artificial intelligence for an image for which he's won an award. He has now turned down that award. We'll ask him why. Coming up in just about 10 minutes. And right after, laser technology is being used to more accurately measure a mountain snowpack. Crucial information for farmers and water managers in areas stricken by drought. 
We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Summer Term at Boston University. Advance your studies with more than 700 courses in over 70 subjects, ranging from business, math, and sciences to humanities, languages, communication, and more. For summer term dates and to register, visit bu.edu summer. And PNC Bank, celebrating all who go above and beyond to give kids the best start in life. PNC is committed to early education. More at pncgrowupgreat.com. I'm Yasmin Ammer in for Tiziana Deering. Tomorrow on Radio Boston, Massachusetts Senator Elizabeth Warren joins us to talk about a pending case in front of the Supreme Court that could impact access to a popular drug used in medical abortions. What's at stake and how that could impact abortion providers in the Commonwealth? That's Radio Boston, tomorrow at 11, only on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. The chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee is asking Supreme Court Chief Justice John Roberts to testify before the panel as scrutiny mounts around Justice Clarence Thomas and a conservative donor who supplied Thomas with trips and other gifts worth more than $100,000 that were never reported. NPR's Windsor Johnson says Senator Dick Durbin wants Rob Roberts to appear before the committee on May 2nd and outlined in a letter to Roberts that his testimony would be limited to the ethical rules that govern the justices. The call for testimony comes after an investigation by ProPublica found that Justice Clarence Thomas had failed to disclose lavish gifts and luxury vacations that were funded by Republican billionaire Harlan Crow. The report has raised questions among Democrats about whether the ethical standards of the high court need to be reviewed or changed. In a statement, Justice Thomas said he was advised that personal hospitality did not have to be disclosed. NPR's Windsor Johnston. Thousands of people descended on South Padre Island in Texas earlier today to witness the launch of the massive SpaceX rocket named Starship. From Texas Public Radio, Gage Davila says the rocket exploded just minutes after blasting off on its first test flight. SpaceX launched the largest rocket ever made from its South Texas facility as a crowd of people on Isla Blanca Park cheered. The uncrewed rocket failed to reach orbit and exploded four minutes after liftoff. But Joseph Watts, who has watched SpaceX's previous launches, said it was still thrilling. Better than the Falcon 9 launch, yeah. I actually got chills, and I'm going, wait a minute, I'm not cold. <laughs> Why am I getting chills? Before the launch, 27 South Texas organizations published a letter against it, pointing to the environmental damage previous launches have caused. For NPR News, I'm Gage Davila on South Padre Island, Texas. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Acclaimed chef and South Boston native Barbara Lynch is facing allegations of workplace abuse. The New York Times and the Boston Globe reported today on detailed complaints by former workers who allege Lynch was verbally and physically inappropriate, often after she'd been drinking. WBUR's Anindjur and Omeka reports. Former employees allege Lynch made threats, touched workers inappropriately, and fired staff impulsively. Attorney Lou Sabin represents one worker he says was fired after a dispute with Lynch. I wish I could say that I was surprised because these are rumblings that have been going around for a long time. And, you know, frankly, in the restaurant industry specifically, honestly, it's lagged behind the rest of society in so many different kinds of ways. You know, sometimes it feels as though it's its own little world with its own set of rules. 
In a statement, Barbara Lynch denied the allegations against her and called them fantastical. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Zaninjor and Wameka. Boston Marathon organizers are acknowledging their part in an incident along the course in Newton on Monday. Police blocked a crowd of mostly black spectators from the race course. Newton police say they were called by organizers to respond to complaints of spectators walking onto the course during the race. Here's WBUR's Ali Jarmanning. The Boston Athletic Association says it met last night with two running groups, pioneers and trailblazers. The groups are upset police blocked their cheering section from supporting friends on the course. Today, association president and CEO Jack Fleming said in a statement the organization failed to create a great day for everyone. The BAA says it needs to do a better job creating a welcoming and supportive environment for communities of color. Meanwhile, attorneys representing the running group have sent a letter to Newton officials demanding a meeting, an investigation, and an apology. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Allie Jarmanning. Commuters taking public transportation in the Worcester area will be able to keep riding for free at least until June of next year. The Worcester Regional Transit Authority voted today to extend its fare-free service that started three years ago. It's 535. WBUR supporters include The Huntington with Joy and Pandemic. A world premiere play by MacArthur genius Taylor Mack, directed by Loretta Greco. Set in 1918 Philadelphia, Joy and Pandemic explores the relationships between science and faith and parents and children. Starts April 21st at the Calderwood BCA, HuntingtonTheater.org. Red Sox handed the Twins an 11-5 loss today at Fenway Park. Tanner Hook gets the win. That gives the Sox the series. Bright sunshine this evening. Some clouds moving in overnight tonight, down around 44 degrees. Then for tomorrow, sunny skies once again. High temperatures should be in the mid-50s. Clouds and some rain ahead for the weekend. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Easy Cater, committed to helping companies from nonprofits to the Fortune 500 manage food for work with online ordering from restaurants nationwide, budgeting tools, and payment by invoice. EasyCater.com. And from Peacock, with the new original series, Mrs. Davis, about the world's most powerful artificial intelligence and the nun devoted to destroying her. From Tara Hernandez and Damon Lindelof, streaming now on Peacock. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Scott Detrow in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. Tens of millions of Americans rely on food stamps and Medicaid to feed their families and keep themselves healthy. House Republicans want to make those safety net programs harder to qualify for, proposing stricter work requirements for food stamps, Medicaid, and some cash assistance programs. Critics say the proposal would do little to boost employment, but would make life more difficult for poor people. NPR's Scott Horsley joins us now to talk more about all of this. Hey, Scott. Hi, Elsa. So what's putting work requirements in the spotlight specifically now? House Republicans feel like they have some leverage right now because of the looming deadline to raise the government's debt ceiling. Ah. So the GOP has rolled out a long wish list uh, that it wants in exchange for votes to avoid a disastrous government default. And that includes these tougher work requirements for safety net programs. Here's how Republican House Speaker Kevin McCarthy described it this week. By restoring these common sense measures, we can help more Americans earn a paycheck, learn new skills, reduce childhood poverty, and rebuild the workforce. 
Now, work requirements have been part of the GOP playbook for a long time, at least as far back as welfare reform in the 1990s. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this plan is not likely to go anywhere with Democrats in control of the Senate and the White House. But you can see at least some superficial appeal of rebuilding the workforce at a time when the unemployment rate's really low and employers have been saying they can't find enough workers. The reality, however, is the workforce is already rebuilding on its own. Uh, In just the last couple of months, nearly 900,000 people have come off the sidelines and started working or looking for work. And in fact, the share of people in their prime working years who are in the labor force is higher now than it was before the pandemic. But let me ask you, would tighter work requirements for food stamps or Medicaid actually put more people to work? Not necessarily. Uh, Keep in mind, most able-bodied adults in the food stamp program already work, and those who don't are typically in school or caring for young children. Some states have experimented with more stringent work requirements. Uh, For example, Arkansas had a short-lived work requirement for Medicaid back in 2018. Sharon Parrott, who's president of the left-leaning Center on Budget and Policy Priorities, says it didn't do much to boost employment. The evidence has now been clear for a long time that when we take help away from people, it doesn't help them get jobs. In fact, sometimes it can make it harder to get a job. Losing that health care can lead you to have worse health outcomes and now be less able to engage in the labor market. We saw something similar in 2021 when some states phased out pandemic unemployment benefits early in an effort to push people back into the workforce. Mm -hmm. Uh, Taking away those benefits didn't result in higher employment, but it did make it harder for people to pay their bills. Exactly. Well, are there other downsides to adding a work requirement? Well, this would be a particularly tough time for people to lose food stamps. Uh, Just a couple months ago, the government ended the supplemental food stamp benefits that were in place during the pandemic. And food pantries around the country are reporting longer lines as more people come looking for help. I spoke with Casey Sturry, who's the director of operations at the Hoosier Hills Food Bank in south central Indiana. We're seeing a pretty big increase over the last four months. I think a big part of it is inflation. The cost of food, cost of medicine, cost of utilities, we're thinking that the next few months are going to be even harder. What's more, when you add tougher work requirements, a lot of people, including some who are working, just won't jump through the hoops and won't get the help of the safety net programs they're entitled to. That is NPR's Scott Horsley. Thank you, Scott. You're welcome. Sometimes life imitates art. Other times art imitates life as is the case of a seemingly vintage portrait of two women, which German artist Boris L. Dagson submitted to this year's Sony World Photography Awards. The image looks like a 1940s vintage red plate photo. You have a younger, beautiful woman looking directly into a camera. Behind her right shoulder, kind of hiding, you have an older woman. From the right side of the frame, there is a third hand entering the scene, and you don't know to whom that hand belongs. The image, however, is not antique at all. It was generated using AI. The judges from the World Photography Organization say they were aware of this and still declared Eldaxon the winner in an experimental photography category. But Eldaxon rejected the award in protest, saying he wanted to spark a conversation about the implications of AI in art and media. He joins me now from Berlin to explain more. Welcome to the show. Hey, hi. Hi from Berlin. So this isn't a photograph. It looks like a photograph. Yes. You are seeing more and more of these all over, whether it's art, whether it's on social media, whether it's in advertising campaigns. What should we call something like this? What do you think it should be called? Um, I would call it promptograph. A, a, a promptograph, you said? 
yes, it's not my term. It was suggested by a Peruvian photographer. It has already existed in the community. And I think it's a wonderful term because it relates back to the way of production. We use prompts. And like photography is related to light, photographs can look like a photograph, but it can also look like a drawing. It can look like a painting, anything else. The AI photograph that got so much worldwide attention on social media of Pope Francis wearing a luxurious puffy jacket with a big uh, drip-looking crucifix. Would you call that a promptograph? Yes, yes. It's done in 20 seconds. Easy. What do you think the difference is between, as you call it, a promptograph and the many other ways that, that art and photographs are being digitally manipulated right now? It's the text prompt. Yeah, you, you start from your imagination, you describe what you would like to have. And you can make such a text prompt quite complicated. You can put up to 11 elements in that text prompt. And my knowledge as a photographer, my knowledge as an artist makes it different in my prompting. So for the first time in technology advancement, an older generation is better off because I know much more than a 15-year-old. A 15-year-old would generate a superhero. So uh, that is something that I like about it, that uh, it is a kind of like co-creation. Yeah. This technology is getting exponentially better Every week at this point, it seems like. That raises a lot of concerns. I mean, we're journalists here at NPR. We have deep concerns about misinformation on many fronts. This raises a lot of really troublesome questions. Do you have any idea how to start sorting through them? Some. (laughs) Um, As an artist, I love AI. As a citizen of a democratic country, I'm shocked about the possibilities of disinformation it gives. Anyone that can just type a couple of words can create a photorealistic image of the, the Pope in Balenciaga. You can't trust an image anymore. We need some kind of labeling, some kind of fact-checking where you see that an image has gone through certain instances, has been getting proof by photo editors. Only then we can know it's an authentic picture shows something that has happened. These are various serious questions that need to be sorted out and will take time to sort out. And I do not think you and I can sort it out in this radio segment. So let me let me ask one more question, though, because you mentioned that as an artist, you do love how much this technology has advanced. What is your favorite thing about working with AI, strictly speaking, as an artist creating these images? It's absolute freedom. I have no restrictions, budget-wise, location, material, props, models, whatever. I can imagine what I would like to have and I can create it. I think that's wonderful. It's like in the Old Testament, you are in kind of God mode. Yeah, You say, I want to have light, I want to have water, and you get it. That was Berlin-based artist Boris L. Dagson. Thank you so much for being with us. Uh, thank you for having me. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. People who rely on the drought-strangled Colorado River are happy there's a lot of snow in the mountains that feeds the river right now, but exactly how much water is in all that snow isn't easy to figure out. In recent years, scientists have been shooting lasers at the snow from an airplane to better measure the amount of water it holds. Stephanie Malterich takes us to the Rocky Mountains near Crested Butte, Colorado. In an alpine basin at 10,000 feet above sea level in Colorado's Elk Mountains, Jeff Deems is skiing across the blindingly white landscape, looking for a place where he can dig a hole in the snow. When he finds the perfect spot, 
he clicks out of his skis, unzips his backpack, and catches his breath in the thin air. Deems co-founded a company called Airborne Snow Observatories. They fly planes over mountains and shoot lasers at the ground when it's covered in snow. It's called LIDAR, and Deems' company is the first to use it to measure mountain snowpack on a large scale. What we're really interested in, though, is snow water equivalent. That is, the amount of water you would actually have if you melted the snowpack down. That information is crucial for farmers, hydroelectric dam operators, and anyone who drinks water, especially here at the top of the Colorado River Basin, where drought has shrunk America's two largest reservoirs to their lowest levels ever. Since the late 1970s, scientists and water managers have relied on little boxes full of panels and sensors located throughout the mountains, called snowtell sites, to get data. They measure snowfall hourly during the winter. They're measuring continuously, but only at one location. The locations are only about nine square feet, so water managers have to make educated guesses about how much snow covers an entire watershed. Deem says LIDAR makes it so scientists don't have to guess. The lasers are 98% accurate and provide a full accounting of water in high alpine environments. As climate change makes snowfall less certain, it's essential to understand the big picture view rather than a single point. LIDAR still requires some on-the-ground validation, which is why Deems is digging a snow pit before his team flies over one of the headwaters of the Colorado River. At the small airport in the valley below, Dan Beresford, a research engineer, and operations scientist Grayson Dozier are tinkering with equipment mounted inside the four-seater airplane that carries the lasers. We have three classes of instrument on board, really. So we have the LIDAR, which is the laser Each flight takes radar. about four or five hours, and they collect a lot of information. And I guess these days we're collecting something like two terabytes per flight of data. A terabyte can hold a thousand copies of the Encyclopedia Britannica. And that all gets reduced into a few numbers. <laughs> it takes a few days to crunch all the data Airborne Snow Observatories brings back from a single flight. But its precision and scope is valuable. After working on the technology for nearly a decade, the company's co-founder, Jeff Deems, is glad it's taking hold. We've really evolved from the proof of concept of look at this new technology, what can we do with it, to yes, this is a critical measurement going forward. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for All Tech Considered comes from BetterHelp. Committed to supporting mental health through therapy, clients are matched with one of 25,000 therapists and can communicate via video, chat, or phone at betterhelp.com public. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in about 15 minutes, the Biden administration on its strategy on raising the debt limit. And coming up next, to talk with the lead actor in the new film Chevalier about the little-known story of a black composer in the 1700s. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MIT Museum with captivating exhibitions and dynamic programming that turn MIT inside out. Curious what the buzz is about? Plan your visit today. 
Beyond listening to WBUR on the radio or mobile app, you can also follow the news from your inbox. Each weekday morning, our newsletter WBUR Today is a quick read on what matters in Boston and beyond. Sign up at WBUR.org newsletters. Mighty fine weather today. Sunshine for a little while longer. Partly cloudy overnight tonight, falling to about 44 degrees. Tomorrow heading back to the mid-50s. Bright sunshine to close out the work week. Saturday and Sunday could be heavy on the clouds. Should stay in the mid to upper 50s. Mostly cloudy Saturday. Cloudy and rainy on Sunday. WBUR supporters include the Music Emporium. Guitar sellers for more than 50 years. Celebrating the enduring presence of music made in the front porch and center stage, themusicemporium.com. And MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software, powering the Engineering Design Workshop exhibit at the Museum of Science, mathworks.com MOS. The DEA has infiltrated a Mexican drug gang that floods America's streets with illegal fentanyl. These guys are absolute creeps, these chapito dudes bringing these previously untouchable princes of drugs to some kind of justice is a very good thing all the way around. So why does Mexico's president object? Tomorrow on Morning Edition from NPR News. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WB1. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. The new movie Chevalier opens with a concert in Paris conducted by Mozart himself. Mid-performance, a young black man strides forward and asks... May I play with you, monsieur? (laughs) All right, fine, come up here. I assume you know this piece? Yes, monsieur. Well, I hope this won't be embarrassing for you. The two take turns playing. Far from being embarrassed, he captivates the audience. was Joseph Boulogne, also known as the Chevalier de Saint-Georges. The son of a French plantation owner and an enslaved Senegalese woman, he was a celebrated composer and violinist in 1700s Paris. His concerts were frequently attended by Queen Marie Antoinette. But if the name Joseph Boulogne is not ringing a bell, you're not alone. My dad's a classical music teacher, and he never knew about Joseph. And All we did growing up was listen to classical music. That's Kelvin Harrison Jr., who plays Joseph Boulogne. He says after he got the part, he went to tell his dad about it. He was just like, what? I never hear about this cat. You know, we started listening to the music, and he was blown away. He was like, this, this guy... You know, my dad really had a field day with them. The new movie Chevalier hopes to introduce a wider audience to Joseph Boulogne, a man that some have dubbed the Black Mozart. When we spoke the other day, I asked Kelvin Harrison Jr. for his thoughts on that nickname. I think it's fascinating that everybody wants to compare simply because Mozart was the, the notable composer that we all know of, but arguably Joseph Kana came first. You can see certain lines from Joseph's work that Mozart actually took and just raised it up to three whole steps. You hear the same melodies and some of the the inspiration, and he had so much flavor, but 
Mozart was the acceptable guy to listen to at the time. He was the one we could look at as the hotshot, the celebrity of the moment. Um, and yeah. Joseph was still just a man who was lucky enough to be even knighted as a chevalier at the time. Um, is that actually you playing, like the the amazing finger work, what we see on camera? Yep. And it was me doing all those finger works, all those bow strokes. <laughs> Did you play violin before this film? So my first instrument was the violin. I got into a program in elementary school, and I guess I caught on to it fairly quickly. And then Katrina happened, and... I lost the violin. It was damaged, and I just I changed instruments, and I started playing piano and trumpet because my dad was like, if you're going to live in my house, you're going to play an instrument because um, he's a music teacher. So when I got the job, I knew I had enough of a grasp on the instrument because of my previous time that I thought it was going to be movie magic to an extent. And then right. Stephen Williams, our director, was like, no, absolutely not. <laughs> the skill level you're playing at is obviously not elementary school. It's amazing. Yeah, it took six months. I got the job when I was in Australia shooting Elvis, and then I immediately I was like, I have to get back home, and I went to my dad, and he got a violin, I got a violin. We started working on our dexterity because that was the biggest thing, making sure those fingers were mobile enough. He's a showman, Joseph, so it's tricky, but you know, you just six hours a day every day for six months, and so oh, you wow. hope for the best after that. <laughs> this dude was so insanely talented, he also happened to be the best fencer in Paris. Yes. Really? Is that historically accurate? Do we know? Well, you know, he was he beat Ponset. I mean, Ponset was actually documented to be the best fencer of the time. And it was documented that Joseph beat him in a bout. You know, there's a book called Virtuoso of the Sword and Bow by Gabriel Benat. And he kind of chronicles his entire life from start to finish um, and really getting into the details of specifically La Boussier's Academy and some of the players that went through the academy and, you know, the envy they experienced, how quick he was on his feet. They describe him as cat-like. It makes sense historically that he was just this incredible feline of a fencer. <laughs> <laughs> so did you have to learn to fence to play this role too? Yes, I did. It was That was actually, I think, it was a lot easier than the violin. But I think with the schedule of the violin, it became harder. Because <laughs> <laughs> you were doing, you just told me, six hours of violin a day. So where did fencing fit in? Oh, my God. So the six hours started before we started shooting. And then we started shooting 10 hours a day. But then after that, I would have to go to fencing for an hour. And then I would do violin for another couple hours. And then I would start learning my lines for the next day. Oh it was goodness. like school. <laughs> wow. Um, the movie is a lot of fun to watch, as people may be gathering. It also has moments that are very uncomfortable to watch. I'm thinking of some of the scenes where Joseph is grappling with the racial politics of the era, the racist politics of the era. Were they hard to play? Um, you know, there are times. There are times when things become um, very heavy on your heart. And, you know, we shot in Prague, which is in Paris, but there's still a lot of history. And one of the theaters we shot in was where Mozart premiered Don Giovanni. You can yeah. go through the halls of that theater and you can still see photos of plays like Othello done in blackface. Digesting some of the fact that it's not fully removed, we're not fully out of it in some respects, and, and it was even worse at the time, can be heavy on your heart. But I also like to keep in the mindset that at the end of the day, it's a privilege to tell the story, but it's not lost on me in some of those moments, you know? Yeah. Um, there is a line that, that struck me. Not give anyone any reason to tear you down. 
No one may tear down an excellent Frenchman. It made me wonder as I watched you on screen, w- wonder if you've ever felt this way. Did that resonate for you? Oh, 100%. I mean, I think I made a whole career out of that kind of quote. <laughs> being a Frenchman aside, yeah. yeah. Being a Frenchman aside, yeah, other than on Frenchman Street in New Orleans. <laughs> um, you know, my dad, my dad is such a tough competitor. <laughs> and I want to say competitor because he moves as a musician like an athlete. And the way he taught us to have discipline, the way he taught us to practice, the way he taught us to just move through life was so specific and so it's so much resilience. And that movie Waves, a line where I was like, you have to work 10 times harder as a black man to be great. You know, it was so fascinating for me with this movie was seeing how that line just hops from generation to generation to generation to make up for the lost time and the lack of opportunity and the disregard for who we were as people of color. I I definitely felt that. Well, Kelvin Harrison, um, this has been a total pleasure. Thank you for talking to us about this new movie. Oh, thank you for watching and thank you for wanting to talk about it. It means a lot to Joseph, I'm sure, and to me. So thank you. Kelvin Harrison, he is the star of the new movie, Chevalier. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the United States Postal Service, reinventing its network with shipping options designed to keep businesses moving forward. USPS, delivering for America. USPS.com slash moving forward. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. From Proven Winners Color Choice, offering flowering shrubs. From hydrangeas to lilacs to evergreens, the full collection is at ProvenWinnersColorChoice.com NPR. And from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation at MacFound.org. WBUR supporters include Soaring Hawk Meditation Center, celebrating the present moment with a new exhibit on mindfulness. Located in Littleton, Mass., more at SoaringHawkCenter.com. I'm healthcare reporter Martha Biebinger, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. The debate over the nation's debt limit intensifies. House Republicans say they won't raise the debt limit without major spending cuts. The Biden administration says defaulting on debt is not an option. Take default off the table like we have every time. Don't play games with the full faith and credit of the United States. It's unacceptable. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins, White House Chief of Staff Jeff Zients coming up. 
Fighting continues in Sudan between the Sudanese armed forces and a paramilitary group. We'll take a look at how families are being divided when family members join differing sides. In Miami, poems are popping up on sidewalks and photo booths. It's part of a campaign to make sure everybody in Miami uh, encounters a poem this month. Also ahead, Judy Bloom Forever, a documentary chronicling the life and impact of the celebrated children's writer. These stories and much more coming up. It's 6.01. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. Senate Judiciary Chairman Dick Durbin has invited Supreme Court Chief Justice John Roberts to testify at a hearing next month. NPR's Deidre Walsh reports it follows reports Justice Clarence Thomas failed to disclose gifts from a Republican donor. Senator Durbin is asking Justice Roberts, or his designee, to appear at a May 2nd hearing on ethics. At issue are recent revelations that Justice Clarence Thomas accepted and did not report luxury vacations and a real estate deal with Harlan Crow, a Texas billionaire. Durbin says, quote, the time has come for a new public conversation on ways to restore confidence in the court's ethical standards. And he notes there's precedent for a sitting justice to testify before Congress. Deirdre Welsh, NPR News. Strong storms with tornadoes that hit the central U.S. last night are being blamed for at least three deaths in Oklahoma, as well as power outages. And there are watches up today for parts of Illinois for severe storms, also with possible tornadoes. Yesterday's storms brought up to three-inch diameter hail in some spots. At a pizza restaurant in Shawnee, Oklahoma, employees sheltered in a walk-in freezer, according to manager Becca Ingram. A lot of commotion. People were starting to get a little frantic, and I was like, it's okay, calm down. There's three feet of concrete. We're good. Teams are out today assessing the damage. A tornado watch from the National Weather Service is in effect till 8 p.m. tonight for parts of Illinois and Wisconsin, including areas near Rockford. The launch of SpaceX's Starship from Boca Chica, Texas, ended prematurely today as the rocket exploded minutes after liftoff. WMFE's Brendan Byrne reports despite the failure, SpaceX is considering the mission a win. About three minutes after launching, the 33-engine Starship began tumbling some 18 miles up. Then, about four minutes after launch, it exploded. This test mission, which carried no crew or cargo, was the first launch of Starship and its super heavy booster, designed to launch heavy payloads to space, land humans on the moon, and eventually take people to Mars. SpaceX says it will take what it learned from the launch today and apply it to the next flight of Starship, planned in the coming months. NASA plans to use Starship as its next lunar landing vehicle, scheduled to bring astronauts to the moon's surface as early as 2025. For NPR News, I'm Brendan Byrne in Orlando. BuzzFeed is the latest company to announce job cuts. The digital media company in a memo to staff today announcing it's cutting 15 percent of staff and shutting down its news division entirely as it seeks to realign operations. Co-founder and CEO Jonah Peretti acknowledging to staffers today the cuts will occur across the company's business, content, tech, and administrative teams. Freddie in the memo said he, quote, made a decision to overinvest in the news division, failing to recognize the level of financial support that would be needed. Stocks stumbled on Wall Street today. The Dow lost 110 points. The Nasdaq was down 97 points. You're listening to NPR News in Washington. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. The era of free over-the-counter COVID tests is ending for most Massachusetts residents. The requirement that insurance companies pay for eight rapid antigen tests a month per member expires when the federal COVID health emergency ends May 11th. Here's WBUR's Priyanka Dale McCluskey. 
Blue Cross, Tufts, and Harvard Pilgrim all say they won't cover COVID tests after May 11th unless the test is ordered by a clinician. Julia Raifman is assistant professor at Boston University School of Public Health. She's concerned the change will make rapid tests unaffordable and will have a ripple effect. This will certainly reduce people's ability to prevent COVID transmission, and it might end up delaying treatment for people who don't want to use an expensive test until it's already too late to get treatment. Medicaid programs will continue to provide free tests until fall 2024. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Priyanka Dayal-McCluskey. The Coast Guard says it's found three unresponsive people off the Massachusetts coast and are looking for another missing person. The discovery was made this afternoon after crews found a 17-foot boat capsized about seven miles northeast of Cape Ann. The Coast Guard says the four people left Hampton, New Hampshire yesterday morning to go fishing. A billion-dollar transmission line to carry hydropower from Quebec to Massachusetts could restart construction after unanimous jury verdict today. The line is to be built through Maine. It was scuttled by voters in that state in a 2021 referendum. The developer, Central Maine Power, sued the state, arguing earlier construction began in good faith. Project opponent Colin Durant of the Natural Resources Council of Maine is disappointed with today's verdict. We believe that voters should wield more power than corporations. And we also think that Maine voters got it right when they overwhelmingly rejected the CMP corridor. The company maintains the transmission line is the best way to bring low-cost renewable energy to New England. A judge is expected to issue an order to allow construction to resume, but that decision could be appealed to the state's highest court. Massachusetts U.S. Senator Ed Markey and New York Congressman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez are unveiling legislation today they say will help the health care system respond to climate change. Markey says their Green New Deal for Health would spend $130 billion to help reduce greenhouse gases and keep health care accessible and affordable. The prescription is clear. We need a whole of government and a whole of health approach to the intersecting climate and health crises. The lawmakers say their 10-year plan will help areas hit the hardest by global warming, rural areas and communities with larger populations of immigrants and people of color. 61 degrees now in the Boston area should head down to about 44 degrees overnight tonight. Partly cloudy skies tonight. Then for tomorrow, should be sunny again. A nice day coming up tomorrow. Temperatures in the mid-50s, lots of sunshine to close out the work week. For the weekend, Saturday and Sunday should be heavy on the clouds. Should stay in the mid to upper 50s. Saturday, mostly cloudy. Sunday, rain moving in, maybe a thunderstorm and some strong winds as well. This is WBUR. It's 608 We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Charles Stewart Mott Foundation. For more than 95 years, supporting efforts to promote a just, equitable, and sustainable society. More at mott.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Scott Detrow in Washington. Elsewhere in the program, I sat down with Senator John Fetterman, who's back on Capitol Hill this week after a 44-day stay at Walter Reed Hospital to treat depression. He told me why he's filled with gratitude and why he's still emotional when looking back on what the experience meant for his family and for his constituents. But first, a trouble brewing between the White House and Congress. That's right, Scott. Sometime this summer, the U.S. could default on its debt for the first time ever. That would tank the economy at home and all around the world. And to stop that from happening, Congress needs to lift the debt ceiling. But Republicans who control the House say in order to do that, they need to see spending cuts, too. They're tying two things together that 
should never be tied together, which is the full faith and credit of the U.S. and the need to avoid default with um, budget discussions. That's Jeff Zients, the White House chief of staff. He says a new plan released by House Speaker Kevin McCarthy is irresponsible. NPR White House correspondent Asma Khalid interviewed Zients and joins us now. Hey, Asma. Hey there. Good to be with you. Good to have you. Okay, so what is the next step in this crisis? Because the House Republican leader just unveiled his proposal. The White House strongly disagrees with it. Mm-hmm. Then what? Well, I will say it is rather unclear. I mean, the White House says Congress has an obligation to raise the debt ceiling, but McCarthy has been urging the the president to start negotiating. He's trying to, you know, put the ball back in the president's court. And Elsa, to put this whole situation in context, the country has always paid its bills on time. Uh, but now it does seem to be inching closer to a rather uh, important deadline. I asked Zients multiple times in different ways if by McCarthy putting this proposal out there, this at least opens up the door to communication. And Zients didn't explicitly rule out talking to Republicans, but he made it very clear that the White House is not willing to tie a budget process to a debt ceiling increase. And I asked him, OK, well, then what exactly is the off-ramp? I think the off-ramp is very clear. It's the same off-ramp that was taken with no drama when President Trump was in the White House. Take default off the table like we have every time. Don't play games with the full faith and credit of the United States. It's unacceptable. It's not up for negotiation. And then have the separate uh, discussion around different visions for the future of the country and budgets. Okay, so basically the White House wants Congress to raise the debt limit, no questions asked. Mm -hmm. Yes, that's right. And, you know, for the most part, Democrats in Congress have agreed with that vision. But earlier today, West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin issued a strongly worded statement calling Biden out for not being willing to meet with McCarthy. Uh, He said it signals a, quote, deficiency of leadership and it must change. He said elected leaders need to negotiate a compromise. And I asked Jeff Zients, the White House chief of staff, why have you all been so unwilling willing to to negotiate here, because during the debt limit crisis in 2011, the Obama White House did negotiate with congressional Republicans and spending cuts were part of the conversation. You're going back a decade. I think the lesson learned was that plain brinkmanship with the full faith and credit of our country and getting close to a period of default had major impacts on the economy on families across the country, and we're not doing that again. And in 2011, Elsa, you might recall, the United States came closer than it ever had been before to defaulting. Mm -hmm. And as a result, rating agencies downgraded the U.S. credit rating. Stock markets plunged. It was not a great situation for the U.S. economy. Not great at all. Well, then let's just talk about the details of McCarthy's plan for a minute. I mean, the White House is insisting that the budget conversations have to happen on a totally separate track. But What is their reaction to some of these specific ideas in this Republican proposal? Well, so far, they have a lot of concerns. Uh, One of the things that McCarthy's proposal calls for is to claw back unspent COVID-19 funds. And Zients was actually Biden's COVID response coordinator before he became chief of staff. He told me that this is a bad idea. There is a false notion that there's a large amount of unspent COVID relief funds that can just be painlessly clawed back because these remaining funds, you know, they cover pension relief for blue-collar workers, money for veterans' health, small business support, and funding to help transport older Americans, those with disabilities who live in rural communities. So I don't, I don't think that is a 
prudent thing to do or a fair thing to do. The White House estimates that, you know, some of these programs could be cut by as much as 22 percent. The president (laughs) himself has said that this could lead to massive cuts for programs that Americans depend on for things like housing assistance and food stamps. And that's a hard sell for Democrats. That is NPR's Asma Khalid. Thank you, Asma. My pleasure. A humanitarian crisis is growing in real time in the capital of Sudan. For nearly a week, two rival military groups have been fighting to control the country in the streets of Khartoum. It's killed hundreds of civilians, trapped many more in a war zone, and closed well over half of the city's hospitals. Among the many soldiers are two brothers who are not on the same side. One brother, Masab Jali, is fighting with the Sudanese army. The other, Yaqob Jali, is fighting with the Rapid Support Forces, or the RSF. I'm the only one losing in this war. No one else is losing. This is their oldest brother, Mohammed Jali. He spoke to us from their home in the region of Darfur, which is over 600 miles away from Khartoum. On Monday night, the family welcomed Yaakov's firstborn, a baby boy. But with the fighting ongoing, they had no way to contact Yaakov to tell him the good news. The two brothers in Khartoum weren't on speaking terms. So I started a group call with both of them, and we all talked. Then they started joking and laughing at me. I was so annoyed. We are worried, sick, and they are laughing. They said, don't you know what we do? We fight. We either kill or get killed. Mohammed says his family's story is echoed across Sudan. In the one family, you will find five fighting here and like ten fighting with the other side. I don't know. It's almost as if the war is inside our homes. At the center of all this fighting, all these families torn apart and the hundreds of deaths, are Sudan's two most powerful generals. Abdel Fattah al-Burhan, the leader of the Sudanese army and essentially the country's de facto leader, and Mohammed Hamdan Dagalo, better known as Himeti. He is the head of the paramilitary group Rapid Support Forces, or the RSF. They become like a second army in Sudan. The two generals used to be allies, and together they helped oust the former autocratic president, Omar al-Bashir. And now both sides are vying for power. Mohammed says he has told his brothers so many times, you're doing the dirty work for these men. This fight is not what you think it's about. We said we have our own convictions and principles that we are fighting for. But I know we are fighting for the generals, not for the country. Mohammed also says that to understand why so many Sudanese people choose to join the army or the paramilitary, you have to understand what's been going on in Sudan for decades. Unemployment is so high in places like Darfur that are on the margins of the Sudanese society. Many cannot afford an education, and so sometimes the only thing they can do is enlist. They have no other options. So far, calls for a ceasefire have not worked. Speaking to Al Jazeera today, General Hamati said he refuses to sit down and negotiate with his chief rival, General Al-Burhan. But for Mohammed... The safety of both his brothers is at stake here. I'm stuck in the middle. I love them both. And I want them to come back to me. And after that, whatever happens, happens. That was Mohammed Jali speaking to NPR from his hometown Zalinge, the capital of central Darfur in Sudan. Every April, the city of Miami fills with poetry. 
Organizers behind the annual O Miami Poetry Festival have printed poems on parking tickets, flown them behind airplanes, and written them up on the top of ice cream pints. But one of their biggest projects is getting people to write zip odes, five-line poems inspired and shaped by your zip code. From member station WLRN, reporter Kate Payne brings us one poet's story of where and who she comes from. Luce Rossi never really thought her poetry would go anywhere. Now it's plastered on a billboard on a busy downtown street corner for all of Miami to see. I write so much stuff that I never really have it in my mind that it's going to be big someday or be anywhere someday. Like scores of Miamians, Rossi got into writing zippodes. They're kind of like haikus, but the numbers in your zip code determine how many words you get to work with in each line. Rossi's piece was chosen for more than 1,500 poems to be published on a billboard as part of the O Miami Poetry Festival. My name's Luz Rossi, and I live in Miami, Florida. She got to read her poem in front of the billboard, splashed in gold, with her words in five lines of bold black text. My zip code is 33125. My name came from my abuela, and she said we can share it forever. I met up with Rossi to talk about her grandmother and her journey to seeing herself as a poet. Okay, so this is the Westchester Regional Library. You know, when we come in, this is a circulation desk. This is the library where Rossi works, and it's where she wrote that poem about the other loose. In my heart, I never felt like a poet, and it wasn't until I wrote more where I was like, okay, I can feel the poetry now in me. Like, I can feel it flow out of me to the point where I'm like, I'm definitely a poet. There would be times where I'd have to, like, scramble for a piece of paper to write it down. And it's like those little moments there where I'm like, that's a poet. What did your abuela think when when she heard? Oh, she was so honest. She was proud, um, which touched me as well because, you know, she's my grandma, so I would love for her to feel happy of something I wrote about her. I can't even express how honored I am to be named after her, you know. Rossi said her abuela came from the Dominican Republic, and she had to struggle in Miami. It didn't always feel like home. It's not easy to do what she had to do to, you know, survive in a place where Spanish wasn't the main language and having to find work and make sure all her daughters are going to school and they're fed and it wasn't easy for her and she's still standing today as strong as she is. Now, her abuela's struggle is the story of Miami, a story worth writing about, and Rossi can be the one to tell it. For NPR News, I'm Kate Payne in Miami. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Thanks for joining us this evening. Wall Street had losses across the board today. The Dow fell about one-third of a percent. S&P lost six-tenths of a percent. The Nasdaq fell eight-tenths of a percent. The number of people in Massachusetts who are applying for unemployment benefits is on the rise. New Labor Department figures show that last week nearly 16,000 people in the state filed initial claims for benefits. That's up 4 percent from two weeks ago. The increase mirrors a national trend, although economists say the number of applicants both here and nationwide is low by historic standards. Marketplace has business news coming up in 10 minutes. It's now 6.20. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Muzzin Audio, offering high-fidelity FM Bluetooth audio speakers in an array of nostalgic designs and colors, available at muzzinaudio.com. 
A good matinee for the Red Sox today. The top of the Minnesota Twins 11-5 at Fenway Park. No rest for the Sox. They hit the road for a series in Milwaukee that starts tomorrow night. Happy birthday, Fenway Park. The old ball field turns 111. It opened on this day in 1912 as Boston hosted the New York Highlanders. There were 27,000 fans and no pitch clock. Boston won 7-6 in 11 innings. In the forecast, partly cloudy overnight tonight. Temperatures just about 44 degrees. Tomorrow, sun's back should be in the mid-50s. A nice day tomorrow, and then clouds should move in over the weekend. Could have some rain ahead on Sunday. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cambridge Naturals, a local source for health and wellness since 1974 in Cambridge, Brighton, and at cambridgenaturals.com. It's Earth Week this week, and WBUR's podcast, The Common, has plans for coverage every day. Today, the entire city of Boston is a heat island, but the South End feels the impact of extreme heat disproportionately. Find The Common on your podcast app. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by MIT's McDermott Award in the Arts, honoring Pamela Z. See her lecture at MIT April 20th. More at arts.mit.edu slash McDermott. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. For girls coming of age in the 70s and 80s, girls like me, and to be clear, I came of age at the later end of that timeline, there was a rite of passage. It was digging into Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret by Judy Bloom. Through the story of 11-year-old Margaret Simon, we learned about getting our periods, about bras, about friendships, about sex, and so much more. Writing honestly for adolescent readers about puberty and sex is not unusual today in 2023, but in the 80s when I read Margaret, and in 1970 when it was first published, it was revolutionary. Now, Bloom's own story, how she came to write Margaret and 23 other books, is front and center in the new documentary, Judy Bloom Forever. Judy Bloom herself and one of the directors of that film, Davina Pardo, join me now from our New York offices. Welcome to you both. Thank you. Thank you. Um, Judy, I am told that you were initially hesitant about making this documentary, which kind of surprises me because um, you're so candid and so open and so out there in your fiction. Why were you reluctant to tell your story? I, I just, Because it's about me. <laughs> I didn't think I wanted that. Did you think we wouldn't be interested or? No, I didn't just... think at all about an audience. I, I was just thinking... Did I want to do this? And I, 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 I just didn't want to do it. But Davina helped me understand <laughs> it would be a good thing to do. And then I started to think it would be a good thing to do while I'm still alive and can participate. Huh. All right, Davina, that cues you up. You, Judy says you helped her understand why this would be a good idea. How did you do that? Really over a couple of years, you know, we struck up an email correspondence. And I remember in that very first email, she was honest, as she always is, and open about her concerns. And I think over two years of emailing back and forth, getting to know each other a little bit, bringing on Imagine Documentaries. Oh, first we had breakfast because I wanted to meet Davina. Ah. Um, and it was it was a very sweet breakfast. And George, my husband, and I both liked Davina a lot. But we still weren't sure. And then you brought in. Leah. This is Leah Wolchuk, the the other character. Yes, yes. And I was very comfortable with Davina and Leah. 
their generosity and their care with the women who had written to me as kids that they interviewed and brought on camera. They're part of the film. I wanted to ask about the letters because this is kind of the backbone of the movie is all through we see you, Judy Bloom, reading letters. And I I got the sense that you found those letters, that response, the way young people connected with your fiction, that you found that real life communication as satisfying as, as writing the books was. Is that right? Well, it was certainly a surprise when that started. It's like, oh, oh, you can actually hear from people who have read your books. And with some of the young people who wrote to me, our friendship and correspondence has never stopped. And just so that people understand, we're not talking about like a small shoebox of letters that we glimpse no. you in the middle of a room. It looks like the National Archives. Are those all boxes of letters that, that came to you over the years? I think there's something like 147, somebody just told me. Is that right? Davina would know. It's extraordinary. I mean, it's thousands upon thousands upon thousands of letters. And kids are really pouring their hearts out about everything from sibling rivalry to sex and love and their changing bodies and real trauma that they're experiencing at home. I mean, the pain of loss, death, things that kids needed to talk about, but they had to talk about it with someone they wouldn't see at the breakfast table the next day. How did you decide as the filmmaker, Davina, to, to put these letters at the center of the movie? We knew as soon as we learned about the letters and how extensive that correspondence was, and especially that Judy had had really deep, intimate relationships with some of the readers over years, that they would be an important part of the film. It spoke so much to the connection Judy had with her readers. Well, Judy, I did not write you a letter. If I had, (laughs) among other things, I might have complained that the bosom-increasing exercise that Margaret does <laughs> fervently does not work because I tried, my friends and don't, I tried. And don't I know it. And when I talk <laughs> to kids, I tell them, it doesn't work, it doesn't matter, and one day when you're as old as I am, you might even be glad. <laughs> <laughs> We should, we should, for people who don't know what we're talking about, would you just say that what we're talking about here? We're talking about I must, I must, I must increase my bust with the proper accompanying arm movements. Like chicken wings flapping as we're, yeah. Yes. I remember sitting in a circle circa age, I don't know, 12 or 13 with my girlfriends and doing this. And I had totally forgotten about that because it's been a while. Until I watched your film, and then I was just on the floor laughing. Davina, were you being intentional with that? And and some of the other scenes about capturing, there's a lot of honesty, as we're talking about in Judy's work. There's also a lot that's just funny. Absolutely. I like funny. (laughs) Funny is really important in life. Yeah. It is, and growing up is funny. I mean, it's, it's, (laughs) it's hard, and it's awkward, and it's painful, and it's funny. And something I talked about with Judy, I think, at the very first breakfast was that we wanted the film to be funny. It can't all be serious. And one of the ways we move through difficult moments is by laughing. And there is so much humor in the pain and awkwardness of growing up in adolescence. And Judy's books capture that so well. So we really wanted the film to reflect that. I want to ask about a line of yours from this documentary, Judy, that resonated with me, which was, and I quote, I could be fearless in my writing in a way I wasn't always in my life. 
Explain. I'm not a particularly brave person. Certainly as a kid, I was, you know, a very anxious person. But when I sat down to write, I never felt afraid. I never felt fearful of anything that I was writing. I'm trying to catch up now in my real life. <laughs> and live as fearlessly as you have in your fiction? I'm trying. Oh, I love that. And you're, if I may ask, you're in your 80s now, right? I have turned 85. 85? Yes, 85. Would you share an example of what you're doing today that you might have been scared to do a decade or decades ago? Oh, no, not really. (laughs) I mean, I think it's just a way of thinking and being and doing and... I'm not afraid to speak out now. But I wasn't afraid to speak out in the 80s either because that's what saved me in the 80s when I felt so alone and dejected and people were coming after me and coming after my books. And it was when I met the National Coalition Against Censorship that I realized I wasn't alone. And then other authors who were also in the same position that I was, and we would go out together And we would speak out because speaking out is so much better for you in every way than hiding at home. That is the writer Judy Bloom and the director Davina Pardo talking about their new film, Judy Bloom Forever. Thanks so much to you both. Thank you so much. Thank you for having us. This is NPR News. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by BMW. The BMW i4 has a range of up to 301 miles. It's 100% electric and 100% BMW. 